Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good and then a bang in the night and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home and I can tell you, I know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Knockback is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to collinslaststand.com. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined as always by my brother, Dagan Strange Wool Moriarty. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny that you started with that line. That's amazing. It's just I, I wrote it. I wrote it prominently in my notes. It's probably one of the most perverse ways I've ever heard a woman <laughs> described in my entire life and you threw me with that one you threw me can you dig it can you di- <laughs> do you think that the rock the, the wrestler the rock got the do you can you smell what the rock is cooking like his inflection is kind of similar from Cyrus to to Cyrus's uh yeah to Cyrus's <laughs> I can, can you see dig that. it kind of thing see that yeah yeah definitely yeah well, anyway, strange wool wanted strange to open up with. Wool. Well, that just wanted to open up with that horrifying <laughs> reference. Uh, all right, Dave. Today, today's uh, episode of Knockback, which is our retro and nostalgia podcast that we do each and every week, is all about the 1979 cult classic film The Warriors, and we're really looking forward to talking about that. Of course, you can support us on Patreon, Patreon.com/slash Collins. Last stand for early ad free access to every episode of the show. The ability to submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts and ideas to every episode. The ability to submit topics and vote on other people's topics. Although this is not a fan voted topic. This is a topic that Dagan wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. And so we are doing it today. I am very excited about it. I just recently watched it last night, actually. So I'm all ready to go. Nice. And 
Yeah, we, there's much to say about this movie because I actually really enjoy this movie. And I will say just at the top, before we even get into our opening sequence, Dig, that uh, this film's a lot better than I remember it being. Yeah. I, I don't think I've seen it since uh, college, maybe, maybe even before that, but probably college. And uh, I walked away being like, this is actually a really good movie. I, it's not just like this weird oddity. It is. From the 70s. It's yeah. a good movie. Yeah, definitely. I can't yeah. wait to talk about it with you. It's going to be fun. You really you really threw me. I don't know what I was expecting, but I wasn't expecting you to start with that line. That was really... That that was that tickled me. That tickled me, my friend. Did you did you have strange wool written in your? <laughs> of course, in your notes, in my quotes, in oh, my good. quotes section. Of yeah. course, of course. But that yeah, that's a funny foot to start on. <laughs> yeah, stra- I always think the word strange is just funny because of the way it was used in like the sixties and seventies. Yeah, it was. It's a it's a much stranger word, I guess. A much weirder word to use now. It doesn't necessarily mean anything good, but in that context, it's like. <laughs> kind of a positive thing for them it, it to find be. some strange sure, wool sure i i don't know if, I, if i'm more perturbed by the word strange or the word wool to be perfectly honest <laughs> back when girls had wool <laughs> oh yeah i know Jeez, holy Christ. i apologize to everybody i know that's that's a pretty dirty thing for you to say on the show is. usually you just leave those things to me and you pretend that you that you're not a dirty <laughs> old man that too. way <laughs> All right, Dick. So how's everything going? You actually made me laugh today on Twitter because your son, oh my, my nephew, uh, Graydon, is sick. And he you said that he found the hotel bell that I gave you for episode 100 of the show, our four hour extravaganza yes. to celebrate episode 100. What's been going on with that uh, with that bell? Yeah, he found it slash I found out later that Helene gave it to him, which is actually makes it even more horrifying. Like I said, oh, just ring the bell if you need anything. I guess we never experimented with that in our 12 years of parenting so far. And uh, that's one of those things. It's like driving from New York to Florida, like you do it once and then you learn you just take the plane from now on, you know, that type of thing. Right, right. Oh, my God. Right, yeah. right. He, he, he abused the bell privileges, to put it mildly. And it was, I mean, in retrospect, it's hilarious. But, yeah, because literally it was getting to the point where 30 to 50% of the time, he was just doing it to make sure we were going to be responsive. He didn't need anything. He was like, oh, I'm just making sure, you know, he would pepper those in. Like, I'm just making sure you're listening. Like, I'm just making sure you could hear it. And then... The other two were like, because he was like really sick over the last couple of days. Like he was, you know, getting physically ill and throwing up and stuff. So, you know, sometimes he really would need us or he needed a drink or he needed something. It was like more serious. But then he would pepper in, you know, the uh, the drills, the drill calls. So it was really aggravating, actually. (laughs) It's a little needy. It's a little needy, I think. He was taking, you know, when you I mean, listen, if we have all of us had a bell. And someone would just come, you know, rush to our aid every time we rang the bell. We'd all have one. So I don't blame him. You know, he's just he's just taking full advantage of having that right, power. Right. You know, that I mean, that's great power for a nine year old to have that bell. And then you come at your bet, you know, his beck and call. But yeah, I'm yeah. glad it's ending. Yeah. I'm glad it's ending. I'm and I'm you know, I'm extra terrified to learn that Helene actually gave him the bell, which is Yeah, I, I don't even know where the bell I don't even know where my bell is. It's somewhere in this house, but <laughs> My probably never gonna see it again it. so she could have yeah we've <laughs> yeah so that yeah exactly that bell is going to be become an important part of your family culture moving forward when everyone is ill and then maybe you can turn the tables well i was gonna i was thinking you could use it you use it on mom and larry if you need anything yeah why not just give it a ring why not meatball sandwich yeah, ding, ding, ding. 
Ding, ding, ding. Yep. Yep. She, you know, we had, she made chicken cutlets tonight, which I really appreciate. Nice, nice. You know, I'm getting a little too comfortable around here. Got to be honest <laughs> with you. It's early, early February. Now, it's not really a good time to look for houses. There aren't a lot of houses on the market no, right now, which is really, is yeah, I, I was actually thinking it would be a great time to look for houses because no one else would be looking for houses. But of course, for a market to function, you must have supply and demand. And so there is no supply. Right. So it's not so much the demand as much as there, there's probably out demand outstripping the supply even right now. But I just I kind of have to wait. I thought I'd be able to move both literally and figuratively a little quicker than this because I've been here like five weeks now or whatever. And oh, that's not that long, though. I, I thought I spent five weeks in mom's house one year. <laughs> oh, wait, no, what is it? I spent no, I spent a year in mom's house one one week. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> hey, it's easy to get comfortable. I understand it. Yeah, I'll tell you, man. It's it's a little too easy, especially when we have such a doting Italian mother. It's it's cute, you know, and I think she's just excited to have me around. So we, we eat dinner and we hang out. No, I, you know, I, I'm not really it's not really we hang out because mom actually guilt trips me every time I go back upstairs to like work or just hang out. You know, I like I'm, I'm I've lived alone since I was like in my late teens, yeah, right? So yeah. it's hard for me to, you know, now I'm in my mid thirties and I'm, I moved back in with my mom for a little while in order to, to kind of make this half step as I come to Virginia. Right. And so I'm just used to being like having complete freedom. You kind of take it for granted. Oh, absolutely. I like being around everyone. It's really good. Like we had a Super Bowl Sunday party at Uncle Mike's and everything. And it was really nice. But right. And Allie's birthday is coming up soon. So we're going to have a little some, you know, shindig for her. And shindig. And it's nice to be around for all that. You know, Dash's birthday was a few weeks ago, and I, this is the first time I've ever been around for his birthday, so that was fun. Yeah, that's cool. And these things are cool. I really enjoy these these different odds and ends that we get to do, but you really do take for granted when you've never... When you haven't lived with your parents since you were a kid, basically, or a teenager, you take for granted, like, the the absolute freedom. You have to just do whatever you want. And it's not that I, I can't do whatever I want here. It's just that, like, everything I want to do comes with a little bit of a question, you know? <laughs> oh, you're already going upstairs. Oh, nice. That's awesome. <laughs> You've only been down here for a half an hour. You're already going upstairs. And I could be down there for a while. Like uh, this past weekend, like I, I uh, bought dinner and played Monopoly and stuff like that for a little while. I was down there for hours. And then when I went upstairs, mom like immediately gave me the, the guilt trip again, <laughs> even though I was down there like all night, probably spent more time with her that night than I have ever spent with anyone in that's the last hilarious. five years. Oh, that's hilarious. That sounds so much like mom. I could tell you. It's, you know, most people could relate to this, what I'm going to say, like most parents and kids as close or tight knit as they might be, I can imagine it would get a little old for both parties after a while. I will tell you with you in mom's house, it's never going to get old for mom. It's never going to wear off. You know, that luster is never going to wear off. Like she's always going to be excited to, to have you there. So yeah, you're in for it. You got to say goodbye to your autonomy i think it's 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 over <laughs> it's over for yeah. you my friend <laughs> it's totally over I, I i willingly and voluntarily left california and my three thousand mile continental divide in order to to be near everyone but no it's, it's been good it's been a lot of fun mom's been a great host and again i've been really getting a little too comfortable so we'll see uh, maybe i'll never leave i don't know, I, we'll you know if you happens. told mom you were never gonna leave she'd be so excited <laughs> that's that's serious 100 serious you know, she'd be so psyched. No, she would. She would be, and and I would be excited too. Because even though I keep insisting to pay mom's mortgage while I'm here, or even just help pay for anything, she will not take any of my money. So, so no one's more excited than me. <laughs> but let's see. <laughs> All right, Dagan. Let's get into 
Oh, by the way, before we even do get into anything, you're yeah. also going to Disney World. You're going to Disney World, right? Disney Not Disneyland. World. Disney World. Yeah, my friend. you're going this weekend. Now your family's been there twice. Or is no, this will be our second. This will be the kids' second time. I've been there a bunch of times, but this will be right. Helene's second trip. Actually, she never went growing up, oddly enough, and the kids' second time. That is odd that she never went because her parents aren't really like her parents are really nice. They're not like weirdos or anything that wouldn't like want to bring their kids to. Oh, no, they're super theme parks or whatever. You know what I mean? Like there's yeah, some absolutely. weird people the floating out there in the ether. Yeah. Yeah. She, they're really, they're really nice people. You, you, so they weren't that nice, I guess. But. <laughs> Sorry, Helen and Charlie. <laughs> now, what are you? Uh, how long are you going down there for? What is the occasion that you're even going down there for? Are you going down there just to. Spend a long weekend. Do we have a long weekend coming up? I don't even know. Yeah, no, that's next weekend that we have weekend? a long weekend. President President's Day is a long weekend. Is that the one coming up? That's not the one coming up. No, that's the next weekend. That's yeah. the following. Yeah. No, we just we, we went. When did we go? We went about two and a half years ago, three years ago, and we went in the summer. We went in May, actually, thinking you know our travel agent did the whole thing for us. We went thinking it wouldn't be too hot yet. Helene and the kids having never been to Florida before. And I had only ever gone down in the summertime. So I've never, I'd never been there in any other season. So we thought it would be kind of cool and appealing. Anyway, when we went in early May, I think we were like May 8th a few years ago, got there, it was 96 degrees. And it was like like a heat wave. And great, my son, you know, Graydon, your nephew, he doesn't do well with the heat. He kind of falls out from the heat. So he actually got sick. Um, whether he got like a bit of heat exhaustion or whatever, he got like done for like a day and a half. He was like in the hotel room where Lilia and Helene just had to go out on their own. So we said, you know, let's go back, but let's try it in the wintertime. I had never been there in the wintertime. So the travel agent was like, go in February, this first week of February, first to second week, it's pretty slow there. It's not a big travel season for anybody. So it's relatively calm there and the weather is really good. So we've been looking at the weather. It's going to be like anywhere from 70 to 80 degrees every day, which is in Orlando, which is great. So that was the whole that was the whole impetus for going this time of year. And we're just going to go for a week. You know, we're going to do the whole Epcot, Magic Kingdom, um, Animal Kingdom thing. I don't think we're going anywhere else. And, you know, the same same thing as we did the first time. Just, you know, try to um, enjoy it during a different season. It also rained a couple of days last time. We didn't have the best luck the first time we went with the kids. So we're, we're staying at the same place. It's a ni- really nice resort. So we do, we're just... Uh, yeah, we're looking forward to it. We've been looking forward to it. We had this booked for like a year now, I think. Because you have to. Right. You know, with Disney, is if you want to schedule, especially the special things and the meals and the character-oriented stuff, you have to book it like six months out. And your fast passes and all that kind of stuff. So Helene's really been on top of that. I haven't done I haven't done a damn thing, actually. <laughs> she's, did every, she's done everything. So, um, yeah, so that's it. That's good. I, I always wondered why why it had to be in Florida, because you never really know what you're going to get down in Florida with the weather. And oh, I know. Also, the people, you know, Florida man, of course, is floating around down there. You never know when you're going to get Florida man. Florida man. And Who's so, that? I don't know Florida man. You never heard of Florida man? No, Florida man so. is like the famous. Oh, Dave, you got to look up Florida man. Florida man's like the famous nomenclature for all of the weird news that comes out of Florida. And they oh, the news items are always like Florida man you know, has sex with crocodile, Florida man, <laughs> robs convenience store with walking cane, you know, like shit like that. Yeah, and so amazing. it always be. And so, yeah, if you just look up Florida, man, it's like, oh, that's hilarious. the funniest shit ever. And it's like an international phenomenon. Like that's what people in Europe think, think about of Florida, because you know how we've talked about cops, the TV show, the sure. seminal Fox TV show. 
and how like that is a really good insight or so people think in like South America or Europe or Asia or whatever into American culture. But it's really just like the panhandle of Florida and Alabama and shit <laughs> like that usually on the show. Oh, I know. No offense. Really lovely places. I love this. Oh, yeah. You can you can lose days of your life to Florida, man, especially if you've never if you've never uh, explored it before. But also the weather down there is just horrific. It so be. it's never it really OK can. down there. No. It's 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 really yeah it's a crapshoot. The weather is a crapshoot. That's what makes I guess Walt's whole thing with doing it was like all right Disneyland. We got the West Coast sewn sewn up. Now we get the East Coasters down. You know I guess you know taking in consideration the whole snowbird mentality. Like my neighbor, my next door neighbor, is they've been in Florida for months. You know they just literally leave and then come back when the weather starts to get nice again in the spring. So if you think of that. You know, if the grandparents are going down anyway, take the grandkids down. It's pretty brilliant. Right. Disney World is... Cr- you haven't been to Disney World in Florida, right, Kyle? Oh, no. I've been to Disney World like four times in Florida. Yeah. Oh, you've been to Disney World? Oh, wait. You did. You were at Disney World with us when I was 13, so you were two. Yeah, and I went. we went, went again when us. I was a little older, and then I went twice in high school, so... That's right. You went to, and then you went to Disneyland, of course, when we were a little, you were a little bit older when, we, when you went to Disneyland. Yeah, I've been to Disneyland. I've not been to Disney, ironically, in California the entire time I lived there. I, I didn't go to Disneyland. I just, can I be honest with you for a second? Now, this has please, nothing to do, please. you know, to each his own, right? I'm not judging anyone except for I kind of am. The, <laughs> the whole adult phenomenon of like people going to Disneyland, this was a big thing at Disneyland. I don't know if it was at Disney World, but people like grown ass people going to Disneyland and, yeah. Going there constantly. And I'm, I'm like, I'm a little put off by it. Like, I just like, I don't know. I feel like this is a place that's supposed to be magical for children. <laughs> you know, like, why yeah. are there, you know, if you want to go with your kids, that's cool. If you want to go like once in a blue moon as, with as just an adult, that's fine. But I think I lived in such a childlike world with just man children, including myself. I mean, I'm a man child in other different ways. We just yeah, talked about how too. I'm living with mom again. So it's about the most man childish <laughs> thing that is humanly imaginable. But I think I was just kind of so put off after a while by this just rampant fandom for this place that I went to when I was a kid. Like you said, we went there in 1992, I think. And I was like, this is fine. This is fine. You know, I'm like, even as a kid, I'm like, I don't know. This is fine. I think I think this is I just don't know that I'm like so bitter at the world that I don't think I can possibly enjoy Disneyland (laughs) and Disney World the way it was. It was meant to be in Disney World. I'm like so sarcastic about because I'm like, yeah, let's just build a thousand acre theme park in the middle of a swamp in Florida. Sounds great. And that's what it is. That's really what it is. There's alligators literally everywhere. Not that you see them because they're so good at controlling it or making it, you know, you know, putting on the guise that it's controlled. But there's, yeah, there's alligators running rampant down there. It's, it's a really interesting place. I can't get out of my head when I'm there now, knowing what I found out probably around college time that like all like the eyes in the skies and the underground you know where you're basically being watched the entire time and they do it for security purposes to make sure that you know they could that whole fantasy thing could be played out with anybody's experience getting ruined by people fighting or whatever it is but like you're being watched the entire time you're there and that's once you realize that that's kind of hard to get out of your head you're kind of looking up and down and everything like that where you know where are these where are these people hiding and watching from it the whole underground you know city that's underneath disney it's so it's so interesting but it's so hard to unknow all that stuff once you know it that's all i think about yeah it's creepy i think i remember seeing a documentary about that like i don't know 10 or 15 years ago about the underground complex and all the people that work there and stuff it's really interesting i guess but 
You know, I don't want to I don't want to be a ruiner, but in this case, it's just it, to me, I'm just like, I don't understand why there are so many 50 year olds in this park by themselves right now with no children, no yeah, grandchildren. Yeah, I'm like, I don't know. It's just it's like it, a hobby. You would have fun. I bet you would have fun. Maybe we'll do this someday. You go down with the nieces and nephews because, I yeah, it's it's there's something really fun about it going through it and experiencing it through the kids. Yeah, you think, yeah and the kids I understand can be that. older. You know, Lily is 12 years old, she, but she still has that. Sort of a little bit. Of, it's draining quickly as any, as most 12, 13 year olds. But she still has a little bit of that element of wonder to things. So it's kind of cool to just be, you know, just to experience it with them. Right. And, that, you know, it's neat. It's neat. I mean, this might this is probably our last one, bef- you know, before Graydon's nine. So the kids are going to be older. You know, they'll both be teenagers by the time we go or consider going again, which is that gives a whole different. You know, that could change everything where the resort you stay, the things you book. So, yeah, this is kind of like for me, it's bittersweet because it's maybe like the last kid like experience we'll have down there. So it'll be, you know, it'll be it'll be fun. It's quick. It's a week. It goes really a week. We went for a week last time. Maybe we went for eight days last night. It goes fast. So you just try to put in as much as you can. You know, don't, don't go too crazy. Definitely don't get heat stroke. Oh, that's, my God. Yeah, that's a no, no. No, you don't want to get heat stroke, <laughs> so. especially down there fall into a bog and no one will ever find you again. So <laughs> you'll you'll be you'll find yourself in some sort of peat bog with some seminal in some seminal se- cemetery or some shit. <laughs> you don't know what to do with yourself. And I don't mean seminal like, you know, a really great and iconic cemetery. I mean seminal like no. the Indian tribe. Yes. Of course. I got that. Seminole. Alright. So Seminole. that's fun. Well you guys are gonna have a nice time. And yeah, maybe I'm just Maybe I'm just getting too curmudgeonly at my age. And I'm so selective about this stuff, too. I'm the first person who I identify how selective I am about everything. I make fun of everyone for being nerds. And then I just lay in my bed for 10 hours a day and play <laughs> Dragon Quest Eleven. So it's like, I don't know. <laughs> but at least you get it. You get the irony, the irony of it. Yeah, no, I, I kind of do it to be ironic. Although in some cases, I really am just judging you. And you'll never really know because I can just <laughs> I can just wash it all away with under the guise of irony. Please. So. I like it. All right, Dig. I'm going to kick it over to you to do our opening okay. segment, and then we will get into the Warriors. All right, my friend. We're just doing a simple thing. Now we're officially in Knockback Wave 12. So as Colin said, these are my Dig and Chosen topics, starting with the Warriors. I think we have 12. We have a, a dozen in all. But two of them, at least two of them, I think maybe even more than two, are fan-chosen topics. So we got a whole new wave going here. Warriors is the kickoff. But we're going to keep going with this little word game we're doing at the beginning of the show. I thought I would try a different word game for this third iteration of our word game opening, Kyle. Super simple. Okay. 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 Super simple rhyming game. I was going to try a little bit more of a complex rhyming game, a rhyming game with sort of a twist. But I'll save that one for the next episode. So let's warm up with a simple rhyming game. And... So let's just let's just go with any word. So I will think of a word. I, I have a list of words, but I don't want to use these because it's kind of like cheating. All right, let's go with the word, simple word, three-letter word, let, L-E-T. Okay. And we'll just go back and forth. Let's try to get, because it's a simple word, three-letter word, pretty easy rhyme scheme. Let's see if we could get 20. Let's see if we could go for 20. If we don't get it, we don't get it. We'll just loosen up a little bit. We'll get exercise, you know, limber up the old... The old jaw bones. Sure. Whoa. All right. Yeah. All right. Hey. Um. Oh. Oh. All right. (laughs) So. Let's do it. All right. So you said let. Let's go let. All right. Bet. Okay. And I'm going to write them down so I don't repeat anything. 
Okay, you said bet. I'm going to go vet with a V. All right. Set with an S. Oh, nice. Okay, I will go pet, like petting your dog. All right. Met, like I met you. Oh, very good. Okay. I will go net, like a fishing net, like an alligator net. See what I did Okay. Yeah. All right. So. All right. uh, Get. G-E-T. Get. Okay. Very good. Very good. Okay. I will go. Let's see. Let me. Can I? Can I open this up to a four-letter word? Maybe. I'm not sure if I could do that yet. How about? Hmm. Why am I having so much trouble with this already? This seems like too early to be struggling, doesn't it? Okay. Let me go. Jet with a J. J- okay. Jet. All right. Um. How about Brett? The proper noun Brett. Is that allowed? Jet I, Brett. I like it. Yeah, okay. I think that works. Let's do it. Let's do it. And I think that makes 10 so far. One, two, three, four. Including let. We'll include that. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Okay, we got 10 so far. Okay. All right. How about... Hmm. Why am I having so much trouble with this? Et, et. Hmm. I should have wrote down the alphabet. That usually helps me. How about... Hmm. Oh, fret. F-R-E-T. Fret. Okay. I'll go with... Threat, T H R E A T. Oh, very. There you go. Yeah. There you go. I like it. Okay, that's a. As in, when you go dozen. to Disney World, you must threaten <laughs> Mickey Mouse at your at your oh, breakfast at your character that's breakfast. Horrible. That's just hold my fork up to his nose. <laughs> his big fat Mickey nose. Um. Oh, let's see here. What can I do? Am I going to be the one to be the big fat ruiner again? And me. Come on, I gotta come up with something. There's gotta be something here. Hmm. No, I don't know if I have it. I don't know if I have it, my friend. They're got. I'm gonna. Oh, how about? Okay, how about wet? Like you jumped in the water, now you're all wet. Whoa. Okay. Oh. Um, oh. <laughs> how about a bet? A B E T. Oh, nice. Yeah. Is that allowed? Very because we already said nice. bet. I don't know if we could say a bet. Is that, a, is that no, rhyme with is a, bet? Hey, that's a new word. That's I, a Duran Duran Loran Loran thing. Okay. I think that, that works. <laughs> it's not that bad. It's not that bad. No, I think that's, it's not. We had to get one in. We had to get one in on a dad. We're only, what, we're 20 minutes in? <laughs> you got it, dad. I got to get You just yeah, got shanked. Get <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. All right. Let's see. Um, hmm, I don't know. This could be, ra- this could be wrapping up for me. I don't know what it is with these word games. I always think they're going to be so easy, and they're always not easy. It's strange. I'm even looking at your word threat to see if I can get anything out of that, like another E-E-E-A-T word. And isn't it funny? I can't think of one. I think that's it, Kyle. I don't have... Do you have any more? No, I'm trying to think right now. I'm glad you can't go, because I, I can't think of... One, of anything two, either yeah i don't think so all right let's see how far we got pretty far let's see one two three like four five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve thirteen fourteen so 14 is not bad i really wanted to go for 20 i think it's worth revisiting this game though see if we get 20 it's harder than you think it's harder than you think it is next time you're gonna have you keep changing the rules too so next time you're gonna have me writing like a limerick or some some fucking <laughs> weird shit well, you know what I was thinking? This is as crazy as I was thinking. I was thinking, okay, let's do a, r- a rhyme game 
but the rhyming word also has to have relevance. So let's say I say dog, and then you say frog, and they're both animals, so that's okay. But if you said do- if I said dog and you said log, you couldn't really do that because they don't have anything to do with each other. But if we said frog and then log, you see what I mean? That would have uh, been impossible. We yeah, were yeah. like four in. We were in like four in. I mean, we can only get fourteen when the rules are completely open to anyone. I know with a three with so, a three letter yeah. word ending in et. So yeah, not grandiose ideas, but I don't I don't know. All right, not well. Bad. I'm glad that not you don't. Bad. So you could easily cheat. I mean, this is the thing is that you could since you come up with these ideas, you could easily cheat, and I really respect that. You don't. You don't cheat because you could have just no. gone and like said like words that go on Google words that rhyme with let or whatever and then you would have probably come up with seven thousand things and then you could look just kept going them, forever yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you didn't it's do a that. challenge yeah. it's a challenge yeah it is it is very good all right well we'll return oh, to that game next uh well uh, maybe that game or a similar game next episode of course of course today's episode is brought to you by angie angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good, and then a bang in the night, and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home, and I can tell you, I know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Let's get into it here. The Warriors, February 9th, 1979. So actually, this will go live just around its 41st anniversary, which is totally unintentional. Uh, but it, it came was out, unintentional. Yep. February 9th, Pretty 1979, cool. the Warriors came to theaters. Now, we have a few questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas from the audience that I thought we'd open up with since they're just cool. introductory kind of commentary. And then we can, of course, read some of the other ones later when we get more into the specifics of the Warriors. Okay. Uh, but uh, Nick Chavez wrote into us on Patreon, just like you can. Hey, Patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand. Hello, Nick. Says the Warriors is the definitive film that screams gritty, 1970s urban life to me the city to me is the star of the show because for somebody like me who was born in the late 90s 
I can glimpse into a time and place in history that feels lived in. The city is a reflection of the people who inhabit it, both in their appearance and in their actions. Hey, Nick, say to me one more time and I'm going to knock you out. Uh, other than that, uh, yeah, absolutely true. We're going to get into that. The 1970s New York City is just is a character, maybe even the most important character in the entire movie. And we certainly oh, yeah. have much to say about that. 1970s New York City is a very unique beast, a very dangerous place. And I think that that's captured in the Warriors. So we'll obviously go deep into that. Barrett Boswell wrote into us and said, hey, boppers, this film is probably one of my <laughs> 10 most watched movies. The different gang themes, the setting of a dark, gritty New York and the us versus the world plot has made this incredibly rewatchable. The music is top notch, too. Can you dig it? Of course we can, Barrett. And we're looking forward <laughs> to more of that. Thank you for the boppers reference. We'll, of course, talk about uh, Lynn Vigpin's excellent role in this. Of course, I oh, love her so from. Uh, I love her from Carmen San Diego, but of course, this was a, a long before that. And finally, for now, Caleb Hager wrote into us and said this movie and the live action 80s Ninja Turtle movie, which Dagan and I both have a very fond oh, place for as well, it. 10 years apart, uh, used to make me think New York was this crazy, dirty, disgusting place where the youth go around beating the shit out of each other and smoke cigarettes while wearing denim. I mean, they kind of did <laughs> during this era. <laughs> really so <laughs> New York City is much different. I mean, New York City didn't really clean itself up until the 90s. But yeah, yeah uh, totally. I totally understand that they actually thematically look really the same, even with a lot of night scenes and like s these rain slicked streets and all this. A lot of really interesting kind of thematic. S and actually, they're both really campy, too. So a lot of thematic uh, similarities yeah. between uh, yeah. 1989 TMNT and 1979's The Warriors. Uh, all right, Dick. So let's talk about this a little bit. This was a Paramount Pictures movie with a four million dollar budget and made about twenty five million dollars at the box office. Could have done a lot better, actually, if not for the uh, all the controversies that surrounded the film. But what yeah. made you want to bring this movie into the fold? I, I actually hadn't even really I, I, ironically, I hadn't really thought very much about this movie. The, the only the only thing that comes to mind for me before having watched it last night was I used to get all of these cool pieces of swag being in the gaming industry. And one of the things that I had that I actually recently traded for some G.I. Joe's was when the 2005 Rockstar Warriors game came to PS2, that, which we'll talk about in a little while. We sure. got these basically these spray paint cans in the mail from Rockstar. They're like empty. What is that famous cryo or what, what am I? You know, what's the Krylon, right. They yeah. were like empty Krylon bottles with the thing still in it that, you know, you you know, that, that makes the aluminum noise inside that mixes That's it up. And awesome. um, and they just had like Warriors logos on them and stuff. And I actually, yeah, I traded it for some G.I. Joe's recently because I just didn't really, you know, I'm not a huge <laughs> Warriors fan. It, it's kind of like maybe I should probably should have kept that. But that's like the that's only. Cool. That's cool. Yeah, that's like I had that on my desk at IGN and I had it on my shelf in Santa Monica and in San Francisco for a while when I left IGN. But that was kind of my only touchstone to this film because I, I hadn't seen it since college and probably before that I had probably only seen it once and the intro sequence I think is the most iconic not only the intro credit sequence but obviously the gang meeting in the beginning but like I said at the top of the of this episode of the show I really don't know that I thought much of this movie other than it just being an interesting piece of 70s camp not yes. unlike like Rocky Horror or something like that some of these other weird 70s mm, and 80s point. camp you know campy movies yeah, that I, I but unlike some of these movies and you know, I, I realized as I got older that I actually really love camp. I mean, it's what I love. And we said this before on the show. I, it's what I love about G.I. Joe and Mega Man is the incredible campiness of these of these products. And watching it as a 35 year old man, I was like, this movie is not only campy and strange, you know, strange wool. 
of course. <laughs> but it's but it's also really actually very good. It's actually a legit movie. So what what made you want to bring this one up? Yeah, it's an interesting one, Kyle. It's funny to think about this movie now because it really went from being it's one of those things, one of those properties that went from being kind of a cult classic to what I would consider now is like an essential piece of pop culture. It's just like a seminal piece of pop culture. Like you can't really be a well-rounded pop culture or nerd culture addict and not have this movie as part of the conversation. Like you have to be able to talk about this movie. And I, also what was really appealing to me about this for Knockback was we very rarely get to jump back to the 70s. We did Alien, of course, the, the awesome movie Alien. We did that episode but it's always cool to go see if we could go back because you know you think of you know especially knockback a retro nostalgia podcast 80s 90s movies video games music all that kind of stuff it's kind of a gimme so it's nice to go back to the 70s and what was really cool about this movie too is i didn't see this movie until college myself and i started college in 94 so i must have saw it for the first time in 94 95 and it's a funny it's sort of a memory that tickles me because it strikes me as fitting because when I went to school, you know, I went from New York to Philadelphia to attend art school, to go to animation school. And it was the first time I was around like a, a larger cross section of nerds from all over the place. You know, I went to school with nerds from Jersey, from Florida, from out west, from Pennsylvania, from all over the place. So, you know, it wasn't just the nerds that I was used to being around that I grew up with, like Tommy or, you know, other friends that I had, Andy and all those kind of got Adam, all those guys that I grew up with. Now I was around a really big cross section of nerds. And, you know, it was all the different kind of nerds. It was comic book nerds, animation nerds, anime nerds, and film nerds. And I remembered as I was writing my notes for this that what who had brought this movie over our apartment, we had a friend named Gary. I don't know if you ever met Gary in your you know, when you used to come through Philly and stay with us, but he was in my very first apartment with my roommates that I went to school with. It was three of us. And Gary somehow became our fourth roommate. I have no idea to this day where Gary was supposed to be living, but he lived in our apartment and he wasn't supposed to be there. It was like one of those guys. It was like where, you know, like years later you think like, where was Gary supposed to be living? Like he wasn't supposed to be our roommate. And his girlfriend is the one who brought this movie through one weekend and it was long enough. It had to be, it had to be on VHS and I had never heard of it. It wasn't on my radar at all. So it was one of those really memorable campy experiences because this movie is like no other movie. I love drawing a parallel to the first TMNT movie because that's a great that's a great parallel. But you think of it in that sort of genre or subgenre of movies as that, as we said, that sort of 1970s gritty New York City movie, which I love. You know, you think of Serpico and... Dog Day Afternoon and French Connection and Ralph Bakshi's Heavy Traffic and Panic in Needle Park and Taxi Driver and even like some of the black black exploitation movies like Shaft and stuff. So you think of all those movies that with new you know a dark gritty 1970s esque New York City as a character and this is right there in the pantheon of them probably one of the most memorable ones. And then like you said too like when you watch this movie you realize it's actually a good film. It's really well shot. It's really well lit. It's really well storyboarded. The acting, a lot of the acting is good. The action is good. So it's one of those movies, and it's short. It's very easily digestible. I could see what, like, what one of our listeners already wrote in. 
it's a very easy movie to watch. It's very entertaining. It's very quick paced. It's, you know, it's not a big time commitment. It's over in like 92 minutes. So I love being able to, and, and there's a lot to say about it. You know, it's funny. It's campy. I'd like to get into the conversation of, was it intended to be campy? I know the director, Walter Hill, was really into comic books and he wanted to do, you know, based on the novel, which we'll talk about, he wanted to do something that was sort of comic booky and felt like the novel was comic booky and wanted to push it even further. But was it meant to be so campy? Because there are parts of the film that seem like they're trying to put across a message and be a little more serious. So it's a really interesting conversation. There's a lot to talk about with this movie. And Kyle, I thought maybe for some of our, not to underestimate them, of course, but some of our younger listeners, like in their 20s or maybe even in their teens, maybe still even high school, maybe they haven't seen this movie. So if we could put this movie on anybody's radar, I thought that would be kind of fun because this movie is kind of a treat. This movie is definitely what I would consider a treat and a must watch. So yeah, that's what you know. That's where I would start with this. But there's so much we got. There's so much to say. Yeah, for its for its brief runtime, you said about ninety minutes, which is true. There is a lot to say about it, and Dagan had brought up already, and it is worth noting. This is based on a 1965 novel, an American novel called The Warriors, by a writer, a kind of an obscure writer called Saul Urich, who died in 2013, actually. And this was by far his biggest book, and we did a. Um, knockback episode about Rosemary's Baby, which was out in the late 60s. And we talked about how it was pretty common at the time for 60s novelizations to be optioned by movie studios. And in Rosemary's Baby's case, we talked about how that was optioned actually before it was even published, because it was it was already being so well regarded in publishing circles. This movie was actually or this book was actually, again, published in 65, optioned in the late 60s in 1969, and then passed on and then optioned again. And what's interesting about this is that the movie was optioned and picked up by Paramount Pictures, who ended up distributing the movie and and funding it. And there was only eight months between the optioning and when the movie came out. And even by modern standards, that is really rapid. But back in the days of of analog editing and all this kind of stuff, I mean, it's much more difficult to make movies back then, frankly. And that they did it so quickly, I think, is really a testament to everyone that was working on it. But also, I think, to stay ahead of... Uh, another 1979 movie that is actually more famous, I think, The Wanderers, in some way, which is like a similar kind of gang-themed, I guess I'll say, movie, although yeah. not thematically the same. And so I, I was really interested in that when I was reading about it on IMDb and p- pulling up some of these different pieces that I had no idea that it was made so quickly. And you just don't read about that. That's usually just not the case. We we just did one about The Thing, 1982's uh, John Carpenter movie, The Thing, and they spent like that much time just on the special effects. So it, it goes to show you that even in that yeah. in that time period that it's it's really quite rapid. So it was filmed on location in New York City and a little bit on a soundstage in Astoria, which is also in New York City in the summer of 1978 and then edited and quickly put out that February of 1979. And so I think it would make sense to kind of get into some of the personnel, not the actors necessarily, because I actually... This is one of those rare movies where the actor, like we could talk about the actors, but no one has ever heard of most of these guys, with the exception of a couple of people, which are actually pretty famous for other things. But the movie's director is a guy named Walter Hill, and he was director of a mid 70s movie that was pretty much a hit called The Hard Time, Our Hard Times and 48 Hours, which was a famous Eddie Murphy movie. He also wrote Aliens and or which is Alien 2 and Aliens 3. He produced the latter and he produced the movie alongside a guy named Lawrence Gordon who also produced Hard Times. You'll find that there's a connection between all these guys or most of these people 
from a couple of films, including another 1980 film the next year called Xanadu, which is another bizarre movie. <laughs> and Lawrence Gordon is a famous producer. He's actually still alive. I was actually reading. He's like in his late or in his mid 80s and he's still producing movies like he's producing the new Hellboy that's coming out this year, I think. Oh, which wow, is pre- which cool. is pretty cool. So he produced Xanadu. He produced a, a mid 80s movie that I actually have a really big soft spot for the Whoopi Goldberg movie Jumpin' Jack Flash, which I love. I think nice. that movie's awesome. Uh, he produced all the Predator movies and the Die Hard movies. He produced Field of Dreams, The Rocketeer, Waterworld, which didn't really pan out very well, but is an awesome idea for a story. <laughs> Event Horizon, K-Pax, which is another movie I actually really dig that I think is really clever. And then it was written or adapted for a screenplay. And the story is really apparently quite different. I have never read the novel. I'd actually like to read it again. It wasn't until last night that I even knew that that was based on a novel or a few nights ago. Yeah. The guy named David Shaber wrote it. He wrote a, the John Milius movie, actually, Flight of the Intruder, which is cool to see. I didn't know that, but he didn't really write very much. And he died more than 20 years ago. So he's been been gone for a while. And then the music, which we'll talk about more deeply, oh, composed yeah. a lot of it by Barry Dizvorzan, Diz, I guess. Dizvorzan, I guess. Yeah, you say. that's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And he also did the mu- music in Hard Times and Xanadu. And then the cin- cinematography is notable in this, too. Dagan had already brought it up. A Turkish-American cinematographer named Andrew Laszlo did the cinematography for this movie. He also did the Bill Cosby, the most mostly forgotten Bill Cosby movie, Ghost Dad. I don't know if anyone remembers that. And also wow. Star Trek V, the movie, the, oh. the last Star Trek movie in that old canon. Oh, wow. Right. The old canon, right. And so... Just to kind of summarize the movie for people, again, we always recommend that people go and watch these things or play the game or whatever it is we're talking about. So The Warriors is no different. Dagan already said it's really short. It really doesn't require much of your time. I rented it on Amazon, but it might be available for free on other places, too. But nonetheless, you can watch it pretty easily. And basically, the movie is easy enough to sum up. It's about late 1970s New York City, really gritty, really dangerous. And all of the gangs in New York City are notable gangs. Hundreds of notable gangs. Each are invited to this landmark meeting in the Bronx. Nine members unarmed are invited to go to this meeting in the Bronx where they're meeting up with uh, kind of a gang kingpin named Cyrus. And Cyrus is introducing this idea that they outnumber combined and collectively they outnumber the New York City police three to one. And that if they just work together and cooperated, that they can basically rule New York City together. But as this idea is kind of getting out, it's a really famous scene. It's awesomely shot. It's really quite visceral. The leader is assassinated. And it's about how the warriors, this one gang from Coney Island in Brooklyn, are framed for the murder and how they are trying to get from the Bronx back to Brooklyn. And that's what the movie's about. It's really easily summed up. And all the campy and weird encounters that they have along the way. (laughs) So I got to say right off the top that I I really dig this idea. I don't even know that if you asked me what the Warriors was really about that I would have even really remembered until I watched the movie much more recently in the last few days. And it's funny because I wrote this down and I didn't know this. And I got to be honest with you, I am not any sort of scholar with Greek history or Greek literature. I know really jack shit about those topics, to be honest. I'm not really interested in ancient history, to be honest. I'm just not is not really that interested in it at all. But so that's why I don't know much about it compared to the kind of more contemporary history. And uh, it, it ba- basically, I didn't know that the Sol Uric 1965 Warriors novel is based in some way on a Greek tragedy called Anabasis or Anabasis by Xenophon yes, yep. about these mercenaries that are stranded 
after like a war and after like these alliances are redrawn, I think in Persia, they're stranded behind enemy lines and it's about how they're getting trying to get out and get back to safety. And apparently it spans like seven volumes. I've never even oh heard about God. this. I've clearly not even read it. Sounds a little, a little verbose to me, but <laughs> it's pretty cool that like he kind of the, the original author, Yurik, kind of based it on this Greek tragedy. Yeah. And it. it's really neat. And you can kind of see that kind of shine through. And I really dig it. I, I, I'm with you. I think that the acting in this movie is if not acceptable, actually pretty good. It certainly works. There's no like standout performance that's excellent and there's no standout performance that's bad either from my mind. If, if anything, I think, again, I, I probably dig the character, uh, the DJ character, Lynn Thigpen's character, even though you never really even see her other than her mouth. And you could just tell immediately that it's her because she just has such an iconic, not only oh, an iconic God, voice, yeah. but just an iconic look. Yeah, she does. And so you can just tell just by looking at her mouth that it's her. But I really dig that character. And there is a few other really great notable characters, but it's not so much about the individuals as much as it's about the group of the warriors, these nine people. They I don't know if they ever go into it because they say that they're inviting nine unarmed members of each gang. It, do they ever go into if this is all of them? Or no, if it's as just, far as the warriors go? Yeah. No, well, they're actually, you know how I learned about this, call. There's actually about nine minutes or so of cut footage that they didn't use in the final edit of the film and there's a scene in the beginning where cleon the leader of the warriors is saying literally says there's a we have 120 members but you nine were picked you know handpicked to attend the summit for this reason and he gives them all like a function it's actually really interesting and it's actually kind of unfortunate that they cut I like the way the movie starts currently. Maybe it was a little too heavy-handed to put this other scene in, but they're in Coney Island on the boardwalk, and they're meeting, and he says all this. And also, it's Cleon and his girl who's saying, like, don't go because I have a bad feeling about this. And he's like, you know, fuck off. Like, we're going, like, blah, blah, blah. And he's like the tough guy. And then he says, he kind of introduces all the characters and says why they were picked out of the 120. So it kind of gave a little nice little bit of backstory. And for the existing nine... Um, or eight besides Cleon, you don't, some of them you don't know in the final edit of the film. You don't know too much about them. A couple of them, their names aren't even said. So you, it, it's nice to have a little bit of color for each of the characters. But if you guys go on, watch the movie first. If you go on to YouTube, just go look at the nine minutes of, uh, of uh, footage that was cut out of the film. It's really, it's really interesting. It spells out a lot of stuff that wasn't spelled out. I think it even says where the rogues are from, that they're from Hell's Kitchen. They're actually a Manhattan gang. So there's a lot of cool little things, if, especially if you're a fan, you could find out a little bit of extra info, which is neat. I think I read about, I, I didn't see it, but I think I read about that scene just that it's in the daytime, right? And isn't that why they wanted yes. to cut it? Because it, it kind of, you don't see the daylight until the very end of the movie, which I think is the actually kind of right. neat. That is so, cool. So, yeah, I guess that makes a little bit of sense because, yeah, they have this new because I think they filmed. I was just reading this, I think, on IMDb or one of these websites where they were saying that they actually went back and filmed pickups that are kind of in the beginning when they're on the train in order to set some sort of stage for what's going on and why they're going to this gang meeting. Kind of filling in everyone, uh, you know, just some of the information, but certainly not as much because I was in reading on IMDb and these other sources. I was reading about how like one guy is like the. Like one guy's name is Rembrandt, who I don't I don't even know if they say that in the movie, but they might. I, I missed it if they did. But he, he's kind of like the their tagger. And yeah, it seems like exactly. one of them is kind of like their quartermaster or something. He's the guy with like the the Molotov cocktail and stuff like that. And he just pulls it yeah, out of his snow, bag and stuff. So, snow. Yeah, snow. Yeah. So it's kind of neat that they 
they all have like a role and they don't really get into it. And I guess it's really not that important as someone who's so into other campy things where that kind of stuff is kind of spelled out more specifically and more explicitly. I I guess I could have wanted to know that. But nonetheless, we don't. If you watch the original (laughs) cut of the film, it's nice to dig. You know, if you're a fan, there's something kind of cool about having to dig for the info, you know, having to read, maybe watch a couple of things on YouTube. It's not hard. You know, and and you could find out more if you want to. It's kind of this something to be said for that. You know, do a little uh, little investigative journalism or whatever. <laughs> yeah, just read. That's all you really have to do is read. And just read. Just read. Someone else did the investigative journalism for you, but <laughs> exactly, that's right. <laughs> so, yeah, that's basically the way the film's framed. And I have to say, even though I like the whole film, I never really feel like the film has a lull or that I'm ever bored with it. Right. I do feel like the first 15 minutes or so is the strongest part of the film. I love the way that the graphics appear really sophisticated graphical treatment in the beginning with the credits for the 1970s, really sophisticated in a pre computer era where these things were done much more manually on film. And so yeah, yeah. you have a lot of things with like playing with perspective and stuff, which is cool. And obviously the scene in the Bronx with all the gang members Hundreds of people, at least in the shot. I don't know how many people were supposed to be there, but really awesome scene, including a lot of real New York City gang members, apparently, that they invited to come film with them. So that's kind of the most attractive part of the movie to me is this intro sequence, especially because you're introduced to some of the gangs that you see later on and also some gangs that you don't see later on, which I think is cool. And there was a list on a website that actually I don't know if it's from the script of someone like mine, the script or whatever, but. They actually name like dozens, apparently, in the script of the gangs, even though you really only hear about like half a dozen of them in the actual movie. And it's pretty cool. The names are kind of useless because you don't even really have any context for them. But the one group that you see in the beginning that I always wanted to know more about, and I remember from seeing the movie back in the day and then was especially intrigued by were the mimes, like their (laughs) weird mime gang, which is they're awesome. They're super cool. And I, I, again, not knowing the the movie so well and not really remembering much of it, I was wondering in my mind, I'm like, are we going to see these guys again? Like, I don't remember. And then I was kind of like conflating them with the orphans who are really the first gang they encounter, which is like not even one of the respected gangs that were at the meeting. And so I was like, oh, no, I don't think these guys are in it. But what do you think about that that opening sequence with all the gangs? And actually, the thing that I thought was funniest about it was that how many of them were just paying their fare on the train, which I thought was hysterical. Like they would go by. There's one shot where they like go by all of the tokens because at the time use tokens in New York City and how they're all instead of, you know, later on, they're hopping that as they're running around trying to get back to Brooklyn, they're hopping and and doing all these things and using the train illicitly. But I I actually thought that that was really funny. Like they're all paying their fares and stuff like that. But yeah, there's that one gang which turns out to be because I looked it up. I had to dig a little bit for that. The gladiators, they're actually seen paying the fare. The one guy goes and gets his tokens from the clerk from the yeah, it's awesome. clerk it's awesome. and then pays as each one goes through. <laughs> and then you see all the other gangs hopping the turnstiles, <laughs> but the gladiators who are from, who are they from? I, I wrote where they're from. Oh, they're from Canarsie. So the gladiators are very, very diligent about obeying the law, at least in that regard. They don't hop the turnstiles. I thought that was cool. And your mind gang call is called the high hats and they're from the so they represent Soho. Oh yeah. Not surprising, I guess. Right. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah. What's attractive to you about this introductory sequence? Not only the scene of the warriors and all the other gangs going to the meeting, but then, of course, the meeting itself. What do you think? I mean, you get sucked right in. As you said, like, you know, you have this summit in I guess it's supposed to be Van Cortlandt Park in the Bronx and 
all these gangs in there. And it's supposed to be thousands of people. And I think Walter Hill said they only had about 300 people in any given shot, but they did such a great job of making it look like it was a massive amount of people. And like Kyle said, they had actual gang members that were invited to be there as well and undercover cops in order to, you know, form a little checks and balances there. And I think they had some, they ran up against some problems in certain neighborhoods where they shot with people throwing bricks and people getting a little overly rambunctious and yelling when they called for quiet on the set and all that kind of stuff. What I love the most about this, the idea of it, as I think about it, it's really a cool idea for, you know, just like a mission movie of here's this group of guys. What was supposed to happen that night went terribly wrong. And now they're in foreign and hostile sort of territory and they have to get safely home against all odds. That's cool. Like that's already a really magnetic, very simple plot that they have to get home against all odds. And you know, what's really striking about it when you look at the distance from Northern, you know, the North Bronx, all the way to south, down to South Brooklyn through Manhattan, it's only about 30 miles. And it seems like they're just, they have this epic journey, you know, where it's like this 30 mile trek, which is not a lot, you know, I mean, it's a lot when you have to, when you don't have a car, when you don't have a reliable transportation and now you're on foot and you're on the, you know, relying on 1970s subway system. But what's cool about it is that you realize a lot of these guys and they say it, in some of the scenes and some of the scenes that were also cut out, they've never even been to the Bronx, these guys, despite that it's so a couple of boroughs away. So I love that. That's really, it, it speaks to, you know, the kind of like an, a really urban life, sort of an urban plight. Obviously a lot of them are, you know, on the poorer side, they're street kids. So that's really neat. And also what's really cool, about, you know, what's really funny about this, Kyle, I thought about all of the media, all of the nerd culture that this movie and movies like it, inspired and you think about all the beat-em-up games that came out in the 80s this movie for me feels like double dragon that you can't play like you just have to watch it yeah and i love how colorful it is you know you know you talk about double dragon you talk about final fight streets of rage all the seminal beat-em-up games that came out in arcades and then later the home consoles in the in the 80s and into the 90s and fighting games too like street fighter but especially the beat-em-up games and i kind of love that this movie is really colorful like that. It's a dire movie in so far as that these kids have to get home safely and they're in a really precarious situation. I mean, they're in a deadly situation. This is gangs. They fight with knives and sometimes guns and chains and bats. And, you know, they're up against great odds and great harm to themselves in order to get home. But at the same time, it's colorful fun and campy it's a really nice tightrope that the movie walks in terms of just being entertaining and i think that's what kind of brings you in i think for me that's what kind of brings you in and also just having the warriors you know our heroes the protagonists that they're all a little different you know they all have different personalities it's sort of they don't go into a lot of gray area they're pretty i mean as far as types go they're pretty ordinary but you know you have the hot-headed one you have the leader you have the one that thinks he should be leader you have the artist you know who's also you know Rembrandt who's also the youngest you have the soldiers you know so you have all of the different types and personalities and it's kind of see them kind of cool to see them play off each other and you have the baddie who's just who's just crazy you know in Luther you know representing the rogues and then you have 
you know, of course you have the badass riffs, the Gramercy riffs who think that the warriors killed their leader and their second in command. I think his name is, um, what is his name? Oh, it's uh, Masai. And you have those awesome cutscenes. Besides the cutaways to the DJ character, you have the cutaways where he's just, he has an informant. It's just a close up on his face and an informant leans into the shot. Yeah. And it's like, you know, you know, which is supposed to be keeping us up to speed on where the warriors are at and what they're up against. You know, and they use this device, which is really campy. And you just have the scout or whatever, the informant just kind of lean in and be like, the warriors were last seen, you know, in Hell's Kitchen or, you know, in the South Bronx. And they got the best of the Turnbull ACs. It's it's hilarious when you really look at it, like those kind of things. It's so funny. So it's a nice blend of like entertaining, good action, comedy, you know, again, how much of the comedy is intended, I'm not sure. And that's where you get the whole campy aspect of the movie. So for me, that's really what starts it. That's what really makes it so memorable for me. That's why I want to watch it over and over again. I watched it, I probably only saw it a few times before I thought about doing the show. And then I like I told Colin, I watched it twice in one night, just back to back, because it was so, so much fun. And also, before I forget to tell you guys, I went on a spotting run. I'm a big fan of like, old, I'm a casual fan. I don't know that much, but... I love early graffiti, like 1970s, early 80s, especially New York graffiti. So I went on sort of a spotting run to see if I could see any of those, you know, those really famous graffiti artists from back then, Dondi and all those guys, just to see if I could see any of their pieces or any of their writing on the trains, which, you know, which I thought would really be. And I didn't find any of them. I didn't find anything that I thought I could find, which is, but, you know, again, like, that's New York City back then. That's what the trains looked like. It wasn't squeaky clean where they would just clean up a train overnight. Now they would just run the train up to the yard, clean it off, and they would never run the train with graffiti on it. That's the way it was then. They didn't even bother. You know, you had guys like Dondi and Days and Scheme and Lady Pink. Like they, all that old, like nostalgic graffiti. I wish I could have saw some of it. And I'm sure it's there. I'm sure it's there if you just keep watching over and over again. But I love that. I love just watching, doing a pass to see if I could see the old school graffiti because, you know, it's it's funny to me, Kyle, because it seems like you look at this New York from the 70s. It's this sort of dystopian dark ages. And you're, you know, from it's this age from a long time ago, from a far flung era. And it's fantastical and it's it never existed that way. But that's a pretty authentic depiction of what, New York looked like in the late seventies. Again, they, like Colin said, they filmed all of this at night. You know, they, in New York, all the exteriors, everything was filmed in New York. They had really great cooperation from the city of New York, what they were up against. Cause they shot in the summertime, I believe that they didn't have much time to shoot. And a lot of, they wanted to set it all at night up to the ending. So that's really what New York looked like. That's an authentic portrayal of New York. And you know, this movie makes me feel young because I was five years old when it came out. I would be six by the end of this year. But what's cool about it, Kyle, is that's when grandpa, grandma and grandpa started taking me into New York. So I wish I had more memories of what it looked like and what it felt like. Now, I don't think grandpa had me in Alphabet City making drug runs. You know, right. I mean, I was in Midtown at you know at Radio City and at the diner and, you know, the arcade in Penn Station and stuff like that. I was in Midtown. But it would have been kind of cool to have recollections in New York City where it's, that, you know, like you said earlier, that perpetual rain. Like, there's always rain on the street. It hasn't rained in three weeks, but it's always wet at night. What the hell is that? Right. You it's know, always it's like, so that weird. Gritty, yeah. Dingy. 
So that's cool too. It's nostalgic for me because I know grandma and grandpa were taking me into the city at that point around the same time this movie came out. So I wish I had memories of, you know, when I go to the circuit, they would take me to the circus and all that kind of stuff. So when that was still a thing. So that's, you know, for me, it's it feels nostalgic, even though I didn't know about this movie again until I was, what, 20, 21 years old. It's funny, too. Mom was watching it with me, and so she brought up this point. I didn't even really think about it, although eventually you realize it explicitly in the script is they also have no idea that they've been framed for most of the movie. Right. So right. They they're just trying to get home. They know that like some shit went off. But they're not really worried about this gauntlet that they have to run through necessarily. Like when they first run into the orphans in uh, the Bronx, they realize like they're just trying to get through and they think that there's a problem because they're wearing their colors and stuff like they have no idea that they're being like hunted because actually you first see like the skinhead group in like this crazy bus going after them and they're quickly (laughs) disposed of somehow. They just kind of lose interest, I guess. And so. They don't realize until probably two thirds of the way through the movie. It's actually after their encounter with the Lizzie's, I think, where they explicitly say like they because the Lizzie's tell them like you're the ones who killed Cyrus. And that's when they realize that they're being framed in some way by the rogues and specifically by Mercy, who is the guy who, you know, the psychopath that uh, actually I'm sorry, not Mercy, not Mercy's uh, Luther. Rather, I'm looking at my Luther before him. Luther, uh, the rogues. Mercy's the girl. We'll talk about her because she's actually probably the f- most famous actress or actor in this entire movie. Yeah, for really. What she yeah. Went and did when did later. Although I guess Luther's kind of famous too. David Patrick Kelly. He was in Twin Peaks. He's also in John Wick. But so there are these. Oh, that's right. So there are these interesting kind of wrinkles in the story that are a little more subtle than the subject matter of the movie might suggest, which I think is really neat. That's why I think this movie really stands up from a narrative perspective. And I have to say. It's a really compelling story idea. Like, I, I know that it's campy. I know that it's a little unrealistic. I was reading some of the contemporary uh, reviews from different newspapers at the time. We'll get into a few of those because there's a few interesting things that uh, Gene Siskel says in particular that I want to talk about. But they bring up that the, the movie feels unrealistic and all these kinds of things. But I'm like, no, I think that like based on the the nomenclature of New York City in the 1970s and 1980s and kind of this cop versus working class mentality that was there, not only with the gangs, but with working people and and a lot of police brutality and corruption and all these kinds of things that it's kind of a neat story to say, like, well, we outnumber the cops and it almost feels like the Dark Knight Rises with Bane when, you know, he's like, Gotham, take back your city, you know, and <laughs> it, it's kind of like one of those moments where it's like, yeah, we might be able to actually pull this off. And the only thing that they don't really explain which I think they do explain in the book. And again, I don't know if this is a cut scene. You would know this more than anything is that they don't really explain why the assassination occurs because Luther basically says like, I just, that's just what I do or what, you know, whatever yeah. weird line he has, which is so yeah, strange. He has no explanation for it. <laughs> but apparently in the book, as far as I understand, and again, have you read the book? Did you, did you check the book out? At no, all? you know what I did? I listened to the audio book, but I didn't actually even get all the way through it. I listened, tried to listen to it while I worked because I wanted to see, I wanted to see what, you know, I wanted to juxtapose the book against the, not even realizing this was based on a book until we started researching. I wanted to juxtapose and see how much it took from the book and how many liberties it took. But um, no, I didn't get all the way through it. Yeah. So apparently it doesn't really stick too tightly to the book. I think it was described as like the book was not as outrageous as the movie is. But again, I don't think the movie is as outrageous as some people claim it is other than like the the different, very specific gangs kind of fighting each other, which is interesting. And obviously the the mechanic by which combat happens and all the action and the excitement. But 
they apparently say that the gun is brought as like some sort of like offering or symbol, I guess that like the gangs know that there's like a gun there somewhere or something. Oh, and that's interesting that this kind of just pops off for no reason because the, all the gangs, these hundreds or thousands of people really do come unarmed and they all are wary of each other. But there really is like an armistice between them, like a truce. And again, the warriors think that the truce is still on for a lot right. of the time, which is why they're so confused, why they keep being attacked. Like, it's actually kind of clever that they're, the orphans attack them first because the orphans are like really not a well-respected group. They're these dingy looking dudes and they're not invited to the to the to the meeting. So you can understand that they wouldn't be in the in the loop, which is funny. But later on, when they start encountering more of these more sophisticated and well-respected and notorious gangs, you realize that that's not the case. But I thought that was kind of interesting because there really is no motive. And actually, it kind of reminds me a little bit, not of the new Joaquin Phoenix Joker movie, which I actually just recently saw. It was really good. But typically that character is represented in Batman as being like an agent of chaos. Like there's no real reason he's doing anything. And right. That's I, I always I've kind of come around to that. I used to think that that was kind of frustrating when I was younger, but it is kind of, you know, Heath Ledger's Joker, for instance, is just a nihilistic maniac. He has no real motive at all. He doesn't care about the money. He burns his half of the money, as people might remember in The Dark Knight. So right. it's kind of like almost similar to that, where it's like there's just this agent of chaos. In this case, it's just this this group of rogues. But it seems like they aren't even really in on what Luther had done because they're confused why Luther or kind of annoyed that Luther is like giving chase to these guys so much. They drive around in like a mid fifties hearse, which is awesome. I think that's super cool. <laughs> yeah, it's so cool. That's all tagged and stuff like that. But that's the one kind of hanging thread there that doesn't really make a lot of sense. I wish that there was a little bit more of a motive, but I guess it doesn't really matter because that's not what the movie is about anyway. But he has a good shot. I mean, that's like a snub nose or something like some weird shitty gun that he shoots from like, 40 or 50 feet away and just pops him right in his chest. So it wasn't really a, yeah. a bad shot. But then there is a cool <laughs> shot, too, of a, a, like a cool camera shot of them handing the gun down. So a lot of different people touch the gun and a lot of people outside of the gang, I think, touch the gun. And and then you find out later that like someone basically saves the warriors by letting the Gramercy riffs know that it wasn't who they thought who ended up killing him. Because the only reason, by the way, that they think that it was the Warriors at all is because one of them is like standing still, like dumbfounded that this happened. And then Luther turns around and blames blames them. And then everyone's kind of in on it. So, right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The, yeah. the Fox character is the only one who sees it. And he when they get separated, they never really get a chance to talk about that. They're being framed or whatever, because they get separated, they, you know, into two or three groups, the Warriors, the nine Warriors, eight, eight remaining Warriors. So, yeah. So that's that sets up the whole thing. It's, you know. Yeah, it's, I see the Luther character doesn't bother me for just being crazy because you're wondering throughout the whole movie, like, what was this guy's motivation for doing this? Because, the you know, you know, the Gramercy Riffs are the biggest gang and you know that the leader is Cyrus and they're talking about Cyrus. And I think they even go into it further in some of the stuff that's cut out as like being this enigmatic figure in, in gangland, you know, amongst the gang you know against again in all the gangs he's like the most revered and it seems like as he's giving his speech to all the gangs in the park all the representatives of the gangs these thousands of guys they're you know you're like what they're not going to call like a truce and just have peace and just band together these are gangs and it seems like they are into it they're all cheering they're into it they're having it 
And when he gets shot, the whole thing's shattered. So you're wondering, like, what is the rogues and Luther's motivation for doing this? Why would they do it? And at the end, he's just like, oh, I just like doing stuff like that. You know, that's his whole thing. <laughs> it is frustrating, but he, and that's what he says. He's like, I just like doing stuff like that. But it's crazy. <laughs> but he's just crazy enough. He acts so crazy and over the top. And I know he's um, the actor. Uh, what is his name again? David, uh, David Patrick, Patrick Kelly. Kelly. Yeah. He's known for giving those type of portrayal. Like, I never saw him in Twin Peaks. I think he might even be in the new. Yeah, Twin he is. Peaks he's in. The, well. Yeah, he was in the new one. Yeah. That he's known to give those really sort of over the top, very odd, absurd performances. So he kind of pulls it off with his performance. But I hear you. It's a, it's a little bit. It, it is a little bit frustrating because you're like, oh, I wish, you know, there was a kind of a. It was so dire for these guys to get back to Coney Island safely. And then, you know, he gets, you know, the whole ending. We won't even go into that yet. We'll go into that later. But it is, you know, it is interesting. It is interesting because you are wondering the whole movie, like, why were they put through all this? There has to be some kind of reason. The fact that there's not, I guess, kind of makes it cool in a certain way, too. You know, if there was a really important reason, that might be neat. But the fact that there's no reason sort of makes it, you know, this Dadaist you know, type of thing where it's like, oh, all right, well, that's just the kind of life these guys lead, you know. Well, you brought up the character of Fox before, who is played by Thomas Waits. And he's actually interesting just in the story of the production, because I obviously didn't know this because I didn't know anything about the movie before researching it. But he was like killed off midway through the production because they yeah. just didn't he didn't get along with Walter Hill, who is the director. And he was so bitter about it that he refused to be credited in the movie, which is a huge mistake, obviously. Huh. I wonder if that actually <laughs> cost him some money too and and later on but i I don't know i I did read that he regretted that decision but that's what's so interesting about that is that he's like actually one of the really important characters because he like you said he's the one that sees and is kind of the conduit by which they're blamed for this this uh this crime i guess against the gang leader uh, cyrus and so later on i guess through the production because you see him he like it's kind of inexplicable because they you assume that Cleon dies when they kind of assault him at right. uh, at the park, but in the park, he right exactly, and he but he's the only one that would have died otherwise because one of them's arrested, but otherwise Fox is kind of just violently killed by being thrown in front of a train, and you can tell if you, when you look at it in in the context of what was going on on the set because apparently he was a dickhead and and Walter Hill just wasn't really having it and all of that, but. They kind of just like he has this fight with a cop and a cop just like throws him and it's not even really him. It's like a guy like one of the crew members. He just like throws him in front of a train and they kill him off. And that's the end of that character. And yeah, there were a a couple of other changes like love interest changes that had changed specifically with Mercy. But yeah, to me, I look at that and I'm like, that's so funny and so strange. Really, probably one of the most interesting tidbits of the production of the film, if not the most interesting tidbit is that this guy who was probably meant to be certainly one of the seminal characters of the movie was was killed off and and, and they never even really reference them. They're obviously no. looking for each other. They're trying to meet up at various times, everybody. But yeah, they, it's like he's kind of just totally gone. So it's, it's, it's really weird. interesting. Yeah, it's weird. And it stands out. It really stands out. It's like, wait, what? Because they were fixing for the Fox character to be, you know, the Swan character. He was supposed to be the main protagonist. And yeah, he was just such a malcontent on set and such a pain in the ass by the way i think thomas g waits is from around here he's from levittown pennsylvania which is only like a half hour from here and apparently being billed at that time 
and even a little earlier is like the next James Dean, which I'm not sure if I see that. I don't want to be too judgy, but I'm not sure if I really see that kind of charisma. I don't know about the look. Maybe I'm not great for judging the looks, but for the charisma, I'm not sure about the James Dean thing. But apparently that's what, you know, people were really riding high on this guy. But he was a real pain in the ass. And yeah, Walter Hill couldn't stand him. And literally the story goes like Walter Hill was on set one day. and was like, fuck it. Like kill this guy off. Like it was like, a, it wasn't like he thought about it overnight or something. And they were like to one of his stuntmen, one of Fox's, one of Thomas G. Waits stuntmen was like, Walter Hill was like, I don't care what you have to do. Just set it up. I want this guy dead. I want the character dead. And that's what they did. The whole, you know, the cop pick does the whole Colgan move and throws the Fox character onto the, onto the subway tracks just as the train's coming it's so weird because you could tell the character was supposed to be up to that point you could tell the character was supposed to be sort of a one of the protagonists if not you know it seemed like ajax swan and fox up to that point were like supposed to be the main dudes those are like the dudes that you felt like were the in the forefront so for all this all of a sudden this character to be dead i was like wait what and then like Kyle said, they barely reference him. I think later on when they all get back together again, Swan's like, I think Mercy says to Swan, like, they're like, where's Fox? Where's the Fox? And he, she's like, oh, we got separated or we got jammed up by the cops or whatever she said. She doesn't say he was killed. So it's really strange. It's really, really strange. And it really does smack of something odd in context when you're watching the movie. It's free. It's like, all right, all of a sudden that guy's gone because he's the only one besides Cleon that's wasted. So... And, you know, they run up against some pretty crazy things. I mean, the whole Lizzie's scene, I mean, they're being shot at by, I think, multiple guns at, like, point-blank range and get out of there. It's like stormtroopers try to shoot. Fox caught a bad one. (laughs) Fox caught a bad one. (laughs) Yeah, he just had bad luck or whatever, which is it's interesting because it almost strikes me as, like, a Game of Thrones move where there's just no sanctity to any character, which is what's so cool about Game of Thrones is that, like, they'll just throw anyone away yeah at any no point like you have no idea what who they're gonna kill i think that was so neat that's what's so famous about like the red wedding scene and all that which is like <laughs> still one of the most brutal television episodes i've ever seen in my entire life i couldn't believe that episode it was nuts but i gotta go back and watch that whole series because i saw yeah, it's it really it starts it's really good i mean i i watched it all in like a month i just waited till the last season was done and then i just watched it that's all not like bad that's not that's right i forgot you did that yeah because i'm not gonna spend i'm not gonna spend all this time like obsessing over this shit like it just it's i know it's a cultural touchstone i knew i needed to watch it and get sure. it over with and i had watched all the way through the third season and then just stopped i was kind of bored with it but i think the red wedding is in the third season and it was actually one of those episodes where I was in bed in San Francisco watching it and I was I literally said out loud. I remember I was like, holy shit, when like certain things were happening, <laughs> just how violent and brutal it was. I didn't I didn't read the books, so, the books. So obviously I didn't see any of that stuff coming. But but for that series, you're satisfied that you watched it, Kyle. You you enjoyed it overall. You're glad you you. Went yeah, I'm glad I thing. watched it just because I know what it was. There's a few really cool characters in it. What I what I dig about Game of Thrones is I don't think it ended very strongly. I don't know why they rushed it so much at the end and. They like put so they build up to all of this really. I won't spoil it, but they build all this interesting stuff up and then they just really resolve it in like seven episodes. And I, I didn't understand why they did that. But wow. Yeah, it's a that's a quick wrap. I think that people just wanted to move on. I know that those guys, I can't remember their names, the, the two guys that ran it, Weiss and Benioff or whatever. They, they were supposed yes, to do Star yeah. Wars, I think. And I think that they're not doing that anymore. So I don't know. That's right. That's right. I forgot about what's that. going on with them. But yeah, that was the, the problem it was not so much the resolution, but how they resolved it. I just didn't understand this like really meticulous slow verbose buildup and then suddenly it's over 
thought that was a little weird, but yeah, no, it's it's good. And there are a couple of characters that I really dig. One of the things I dig about that show a lot, and I guess that universe, I don't, again, I don't know the books is there's just like a hint of magic in the show. Like there are, there are a couple of people that know how to use magic. And there's okay. this one guy, I can't remember his name. That's like a warrior. He has like a sword, like this broadsword, and he puts his hand over it before he fights and he like lights it on fire. It's like oh, really cool, cool, but like a lot of people I don't like, like, he, like that. He puts his hand like at the bottom of the hilt and he just like goes up the blade and it like go it like lights on fire before he fights or whatever, which I think is really neat. That's sick. And and there's like cool stuff like that in it that so it's like not obviously like the White Walkers who are like the zombie type bad guys are obviously very supernatural. Right, but right. and I love the idea of summer and winter. I think that's really cool how they have like perpetual summer and it's kind of a figurative thing where it's about like the peace of the land and how how prosperous people are. And then winter is coming is like the whole idea of like they go to these long periods of winter where like everyone's dying and there's war oh, wow. and all sorts of pestilence and all that kind of stuff. So I think that's kind of neat. But yeah, I got to watch that. Yeah, it's, it's good. And there's a few really great performances in it. Jamie Lannister is a really great character. The Lannisters are all really great. And yeah, there's a there's a few really good good characters and I think you would enjoy it. It's worth it's totally worth it because it's just so important culturally. It's it's like the first why well, I've said this many times. I don't know if I said it on this show, but Game of Thrones being the biggest TV show for the t- entire duration 8 or 9 years that it was on in the world would have never in a million years happened when I was a kid. Nonetheless, mm, when you were a kid, and that's what's so no. interesting about it is like this would have been considered the nerdiest shit ever. And I understand that no. it's production value is incredibly high it's got hbo's money and all this kind of stuff behind it but when i was a kid like i watched xena and hercules and babylon 5 and even stuff like firefly and whatever and even stuff like Battlestar yeah. galactica kind of started to bro- breach like the the mainstream firewall i think lost was probably the first real sci-fi show that really became mainstream but it's really mm, unthinkable that a fantasy show about dragons and zombie white walkers and dudes that light their f- swords on fire and shit would be like this f- cultural phenomenon. And that's what's so interesting about it. That's why I think everyone should see it just because it's like this real inflection point in culture in popular yeah. culture. Yeah, it's a good point. We got to do a, an episode on We can do an episode on because the, the TV series is over. I know the books are ongoing still, right? But at least the TV series is done. So yeah, the TV series do is done. Knockback. Yeah, and I know people want us to do it, but it is an, it's a big time investment. And we have a few that's other... a big one. We have a few other shows that we need to get through first, more imminently. Some of those are big time investments, too. So we'll add that to the list. I assume before episode 200, we'll get to it. And I'm not even I'm not even trying to be facetious about that. I just think that no, it'll take that's us probably, probably a couple, fair. Yeah, probably a yeah. couple of years to get there. That's fair. That's fair. So what do you think, Dig? Back to the Warriors. What do you think yes. about some of these characters? Because I got to be honest with you. So Swan, Ajax, Snow, Cochise, Cowboy, Rembrandt, Vermin, Fox, and then Cleon is the leader who is killed in the beginning. These a lot of these guys kind of mix up with each other. I was much more interested in reading about the particular actors that played all these guys, because a couple of them, I think, don't even have like Wikipedia pages. Some of the guys that were in the gang, like didn't even really act before or after, which I thought was interesting. I think the most interesting takeaway for me was Rembrandt's actor, Marcelino Sanchez, died of AIDS in 1986, which I thought was kind of kind of sad. Yeah, 86, 1986. So he was an early, pretty early casualty in America. The AIDS oh, wow. epidemic obviously kicked off in the early 80s in the United States in a mainstream way. So, yeah, he was an early I don't know if it was uh, sexual or blood transfusions were still giving people AIDS at that time. So who the hell knows? But or it could have been drug oh, use. Wow. But that's yeah. Sucks. So a lot of these different characters kind of with the exception of, you know, James Remar and maybe Michael Beck a little bit. And then obviously 
and we'll talk about Mercy's Deborah Van Valkenburg, and we already talked about David Patrick Kelly. A lot of these guys are kind of obscure actors that some of them didn't act again. I think one of them is like a voiceover actor now, and a lot of them reprise their roles, including actually Thomas Waite. Uh, Thomas Waits reprised their role in Rockstar's game that I brought up earlier. Right. Uh, the 2005's PS2 game and Xbox game, The Warriors. It's also on PSP. And it's actually on PS4 as well. You can download it on a PS4 as well. It's trophy enabled there. But do any of these particular characters stand out to you? Because again, I look at the city as much more of a character than any of the individuals. Because we don't really get to know any of them that well. So with the exception no. of maybe like Swan, we don't really get to know. And I guess, well, Swan and then Ajax is the one... Who's Ajax? Is he the one that's that's arrested or is he the one that has is the love interest? Yes, he's the one that's arrested by the undercover cop. Yeah, no, he's the one that's arrested. So you kind of get to know him. He's kind of like he's kind of rapey a little bit. <laughs> he's super rapey. That guy's yeah, he's like really ra- like he almost he could have gotten away if he just didn't go and try to like basically rape the cop in the it was kind of on some uncomfortable stuff. Also, his character throws around. This is like what, what I like to call the uh, dire straits money for nothing fiasco where he just throws around the word faggot like several times. And the first time he says it, the first time he says it, no, again, this is culturally relative, of course, right? Like people use that word in the seventies and eighties. People use that word in the nineties. I've said that word, you know, it's just not a word that I've used in the last 20 years, probably. So I don't, you know, and and the way he's using it is not the way we used it too, where we didn't really use it as a pejorative about gay people, but he kind of was using it as a pejorative about gay people. But I call it the dire straits problem because if you listen to money for nothing, he uses the like he says he says the word faggot and then you're like what and like by the time you realize that he said it then he says it again you know and you're like oh my god he really is saying it and he's uh, saying it so anyway what do you so that's a little like especially for our younger listeners that might be a little jarring you know it's not that you don't hear the the word it's just it's just again it's it's kind of thrown around i don't really have a problem with it being used in fiction it's not really a big deal to me but i understand that that might be upsetting to some people but Nonetheless, what do you make about these different characters and and do any of them in particular stand out to you as more notable or more interesting than the others? I know, like I said earlier, I like Rembrandt a lot. Just I like that one scene where they're running out of the cemetery right after the gang meeting and he runs back to the tombstone and like spray paints the W on it. I'd like to think he was (laughs) spray painting Dr. Wiley's W on it, but he's obviously spray painting the warrior W on it. So he's not very skillful. But you know what the funniest thing about that? It just just makes me laugh about 1970s New York. When he goes back and you realize he's shaking the can, he's going to tag up the gravestone. And then it sort of reveals the face of the gravestone as he's painting. He's like the 20th person to tag that gravestone. <laughs> it's not yeah, it's like awesome. I noticed that too. It's first. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh my God, what a friggin' what a crazy place. 1979 New York was, you know, it's funny yeah, about yeah, the it's Warriors. I, I, yeah, I love on. it so much that I want to learn more about the characters and what I'm going to say, I'll just run through the characters really quick. The, the, the main warriors really quick, but I have to say, I got this information from probably a variety of ways. There's extended canon, as we said, through the video game, through the extended sort of director's cut or the cut scenes of the movie, and just through watching the movie like a maniac and just trying to glean and listen for every piece of information. I'll start with Cleon, the leader, who, you know, as we said, seems like he's killed by the riffs. You know, they just overtake him and beat the crap out of him. But I like that character a lot. And, you know, seeing Cleon, I think he's really, that actor's really great. Very charismatic actor, really great actor. And I think a lot of that, again, was from that cut scene where they're sort of, he's sort of pre-summit 
on the boardwalk in Coney Island, sort of a, walking his gang through the routine and sort of assigning everybody their roles and arguing with his girlfriend. I really like the actor. It would be cool to see the character more. And then you kind of see, like, when they confront him, when the riffs start to confront him and the other gang members, he starts to fight. And he seems pretty badass. He takes a few out before they overtake him. It would have been interesting to see that character. I liked his confidence. I liked his swagger. I liked his leadership. So it would have been cool to see a little more of him. I liked him a lot. Swan, I guess the other big character, who we find out is the second in command. He's the war chief or the warlord. They they sort of mix those two roles, those two descriptions up a lot in the movie. I don't think they knew which one to go with. So sometimes they call him the war chief. And sometimes they call him the Warlord, played by Michael Beck. I think Michael Beck's a really good actor. I like him a lot. I like him in the role. It's campy, but he does a good job sort of buoying and anchoring the cast, I think. I think he's he's somebody who I enjoy watching on screen. Although he's not the most interesting character. He's a really interesting character, actually, in so far as that his relationship with the Mercy character, who we'll talk about, he's... Sort of seems like he he makes some comments that he seems like he could be almost as rapey and inappropriate as Ajax. And then, on the other hand, he seems like he has a little more, operates under a little more of a code, almost like a knight. So he seems to have both things. So he's an interesting gray character that we never find out too much about. Because sometimes he says some fucked up shit, and sometimes he seems a little more above it and a little more intelligent than the other guys. So I like that he's like feels like a grounded character. And then Ajax already talked about he's sort of the mouthy badass. You know, he's full of moxie. And he challenges Swan early as as like, you know, when Cleon's killed and they have to make a run for the for Brooklyn, he, you know, he says, like, why aren't why are you in charge? Why am I not in charge? And he always has an answer for everything. He's the big mouth. But what's cool about him, and I think we finally see this during the confrontation with the baseball furies, is that he has the shit to back it up. He could fight. So that was kind of interesting about the character. Like he you, he's almost the type of blowhard that you're thinking up to the point where you actually see him fight. I was like, oh, this guy's gonna be the first one to get his ass kicked because he has way too much to say. He's one of those guys who's all bark and no bite. And he ends up being able to fight, which is kind of neat. That's kind of cool. And then we have the Fox character. We talked about him. He gets he gets body slammed onto the train tracks. Feels very odd. And then Cochise, Kyle. Cochise is the guy. He's he's got all the beads on. He's got. Oh, yeah, like, he's cool. I like that guy. Yeah. He's cool. I always wanted to know more about him. Like he's a sign. He's a soldier. You know, he's a soldier. Late in the fight. What fight is it that you see him actually do some crazy stuff? Oh, I think maybe beforehand. But to my best recollection, you see him fight a lot more. When they're fighting the gang, the roller skating guys the in punks. the subway station, yeah, there. That's really that's you see him do the most there, so that he's kind of neat. Cowboy, they say I think they say his name once. Cut the cutout scenes aside, I think they say his name once, and you just know him because of the cowboy hat. You never find out anything really more about that character, which is kind of interesting. He seems to be the the one who's provided maybe along with Cochise, you get the least color with him Rembrandt is kind of a cool character you know he's the youngest he's the artist he's the one who kind of leaves their tag behind and stuff like that but and that's his assignment you know and if you go back and watch that cut scene Cleon is saying to him like you're the guy you know you're the guy you, you know you have to get up you have to be the one with the can or whatever you're gonna you're gonna be packing the can or whatever so that's kind of cool but what I like about him is that he's the youngest 
And there's scenes where you could see he's a little more wary and leery. Like he's worried. Like the whole thing with the Lizzie's. He seems to be the one who kind of catches on that something doesn't feel right first, which is interesting because he's the youngest. So it would have been cool to see a little more development with his character because you kind of get those little nuances through scenes I, like with the Lizzie's and stuff. Yeah, you know? I think that I think that there's just to cut in real quick. I think with him. Yeah, sure. I don't know if I got this right, but I think with the Furies, he gets knocked out like almost immediately. I think that's him. And then I think when they're fighting the punks in the bathroom, he like yeah. won't even fight. He like he stand. He's like in the corner. Like he doesn't even. No, actually I think you're fight. right. Yeah. I think you're right. He might so be the first one to get knocked out with the. Yeah. yeah, I think you might. Yeah, I think that might be Rembrandt. Yeah, that's interesting. Like he, they're they almost like protect him, or he's like maybe the youngest member where it's like, you know, he's still. He's definitely not soldier status. Right, right. You know, at a certain point, which is interesting that he's (laughs) that he's brought along out of the 120 out of the 120 warriors because anybody could do the W he did on that gravestone. Right. (laughs) Exactly. They could have brought Stevie Wonder. They would have been fine. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Would have been all right. And then you have Snow, Kyle, who's like, oh, no, Vermin. I call him the Italian chest wig guy. You know what's really interesting about him? He's sort of like this handsome Italian actor. I found out later that they were trying to get Tony Danza. You might he looks like Tony comic. Danza, which is so funny about that. He does. He, yeah, he's he like looks a total like type. You right. know, handsome, young Italian guy. He has the whole New York thing going on for sure. Definitely Northeast Italian, if not New York. And what's interesting about him is in the extended fiction or canon or whatever, I'm not sure where I found out about this. It said that Cleon and Vermin are the ones who started the Warriors. He would probably be one of the last ones I would pick to be like, you know, one of the one of the pioneers of the gang. Right. But apparently he is. And he's the one who's charged with, I believe he's the one who's charged with being the bearer, which means he has to bring the tokens and the money. He's the one who has to hold all their stuff, basically. I don't know what the significance of that is, how important that is. But for, you know, back then they didn't have Metro cards. You know, they had tokens, so it's kind of important if you want to get back and forth. And if I don't know though, they were they were hopping a lot of turnstiles, so I'm not sure how important the tokens were. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know. And yeah. then Snow is my favorite dude. Snow is the one who has you guys remember the orphans confrontation where he has the Molotov cocktail around his neck. And when I found out I like this character because he has a really interesting look. He's like a really good looking dude. He he's he has a really exotic look to him. And he was always really interesting to me because he seemed like he was the most unflappable. And when he spoke, it seemed like there was some wisdom behind it. He didn't say much. And it turns out that they named this character Snow because he was so cool under pressure. And now, again, I'm not sure which extended canon or fiction I found this out from. But he was the character who I wanted to kind of learn more about, that he's sort of this soldier. I think he's Cleon charges him as a soldier in the beginning in that cut scene and that scene that's cut out. And again, he's the one with the Molotov cocktail around his, around his neck. I, I always thought he was an interesting character. I, he was one of the ones who was like, Oh, I want a little more out of this dude. Like, let me, let me learn a little bit more about this guy. But again, I like this movie so much. I just want to learn more about the characters. Now, Kyle, let me ask you, you played the 2005 rockstar game. Do you remember? You gave that to me. Do you remember that? No, I don't, but I I, be, I believe it. Yeah. Well, that, yeah you I either give it... bought it for me or gave it to me. I'm not sure which one. 
And I only played it like right after you gave it to me, like one of those first nights that I had it in my possession. I popped it in and played for a night or part of a night. And I just never played it again. And I, it's funny because I don't have any recollection of the game. Now, I, I, mean, I imagine it's a Rockstar game, so I imagine it's good. So tell me more about the game because I want to – I have to go back and check that game out now being a fan of the movie. Yeah, it's it's a very recognizable PS2, late PS2 era Rockstar game. Looks a lot like Grand Theft Auto with really janky combat and stuff. And it's basically just a game where you, you kind of are centralized in the Warriors like Coney Island Clubhouse and you can kind of go back there to continue the story. And there's like some other side tasks that you can do. It's not as well fleshed out as a Grand Theft Auto game, but it's more fleshed out than some other PS2 era games like from them, like State of Emergency or something, which is basically all about combat and madness or whatever. So, yeah, that's basically what it is. I think it's a prequel. And as I recall, oh, that's and cool. yeah, there's a lot of gameplay. I actually went and looked at looked it up and just looked at it. It, it. it looks pretty good, actually, for a PS2 era game. I think I think I might have been watching the Uprez ps4 version of it but they didn't do anything to it it's just running better so uh okay. yeah it's a it's a affordable game i think it's 10 bucks on ps4 if, if you buy it digitally and yeah so that's basically it it's just like a game with some side quests but it's a linear sort of game you go back to this clubhouse i think you can like level up your characters by like working out and doing all these different tasks and yeah that's basically it it's a pretty straightforward ps2 era game that uses the license i think it was released that year because i think that that was like the 25th anniversary or so and i think that that's when they released like the special edition dvd with like the full the full all the cut scene you know the cut scenes out of the movie and the deleted scenes or whatever and commentary and stuff so i think that that was like a year of celebration for the brand and i think that's why it came out at that time and i was actually really surprised that it came to ps4 it came to ps4 in 2016 as i recall because you would just assume that Rock, Rockstar wasn't and 2K and Take Two and 2K weren't wise enough to hold on to the license, but it seems like they were because there it is. I mean, it's it's there. So right, exactly. Because they weren't dealing. There's so much complication from that era, and obviously eras before that, because people didn't even the smartest people in the industry didn't really see the digital revolution coming up. So people weren't, you know, entities weren't holding on to licensing and rights the way they do now so it's it's difficult at points to get some of these games onto digital services if you're wondering why a game isn't on digital services yet it's because it's either not a very big or important game or because they're having a lot of difficulty acquiring reacquiring the rights to that game because they were sometimes the language if you read some of these agreements is literally like you can publish these games on playstation 2 discs and like what you that's what it says there's no there's no stipulation about digital distribution or other platforms or anything so that's what's right. so interesting about agreements from that era and why it was actually kind of a pleasant surprise. I remember when the Warriors came to PS4 because no one really anticipated that that was going to happen. And Rockstar, for all the shit people give them, have been really great about putting their PS2 games out again, which is cool. Whether That's it's, cool. Bu- you know, Bully, Red Dead, I think Manhunt is or no Manhunt might even be out, but I think that might be stranded. I love Manhunt. And then obviously the three Grand Theft, the Grand Theft Auto trilogy on PS2. So. There's a few others missing, though. I think that let's see. Yeah, like a few games missing, like Tabletop Tennis, whatever the hell that game was called. But and Smugglers Run, I don't think that's out. But okay. yeah, so yeah, it's it's a very recognizable third person rock star janky action game. Very similar to Manhunt, very similar to Grand Theft Auto. Cool. I, I want to check it out. That that might be a game I could get into. I mean, knowing I, I sort of my my fandom for this film has been really rekindled. I'm very I know I was texting you about it. I'm very excited about this movie. I just really 
I was even even knowing I liked it enough to do an, a knockback episode to go back and watch it and enjoy it even more than I remembered, you know, and not just a funny campy thing. It was like, wow, no, this movie is good on a lot of levels. This movie is really worth discussing on a lot of levels. I, I might have to go back and play this game. It might it might actually I like this movie so much that the game might disappoint me because I, I want it to be I want it to represent the franchise properly. But, I you know, if I have to go back and sort of analyze it and examine it in its context and its 2005 place it's been it's been a long time that's that's a long time ago 16 years ago 15 years ago so you know i have to uh i have to be fair but i, I want to go play it i really i'm interested i'm interested and it's it's somewhere on my shelves somewhere over here i'm looking i don't know i don't see it but oh, yeah no, it's it's it, it, it holds right up it holds up you know it, it's definitely ps2 games are very hit or miss with that stuff and they this be, this that being era. a more yeah this being a more late gen PS2 game, I think I think Rockstar Toronto makes it which I made it which I don't even think exists anymore. And then they ported it oh, to, wow. I think Leeds report uh, ported it to PSP in like 2007. So yeah, I, I think it's a game that holds up. It's people actually, I think I actually might have gotten a letter in about this. Let me see. Yeah, Pork Chop wrote in about it. Hey, Pork, Pork Chop could be Doug, Doug's dog from uh, Doug Funny's dog. Is he a listener? Could be. I'd be so. Be. I'd be so tickled. I'd be so tickled. That dog's like thirty-three years old, but he's still cruising. <laughs> Says, "Hey guys, my love for the Warriors IP began with a video game. As a twelve-year-old kid, getting my mom to take me to Best Buy and buy a game based on a movie I'd never seen was one of my fondest memories. The minute I completed the game, I knew I just had to watch the movie. Seen it probably one hundred plus times now. I'm interested in knowing your thoughts on the video game tie-in and if you think it did the movie justice by adding some really cool backstory. The real question here is, can you dig it? Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so I don't remember. I remember it being a prequel, but I don't remember specifically what the game was about, probably because when I played it and had ever messed around with it, I really didn't have an incredible amount of context. I think like many people during this era, I was much more excited that I was playing a Rockstar game because I would buy just about anything they put out. I mean, that's why famously, if you weren't around in this era, when Grand Theft Auto 3 came out in October of 2001, it had an ad on the back of the instruction manual for a game called State of Emergency, which is fucking trash. And, I, and that game sold many copies because of oh, its wow. simple inclusion in Grand Theft Auto 3's instruction manual. So we <laughs> hadn't learned quite learned our lesson at that point. And wow. Rockstar had also not become this really boutique-ish developer either. I mean, I think after I have to look, but after the Warriors came out, Grand Theft Auto 4 came out in 2008 and then Red Dead in 2010 and then Grand Theft Auto 5 in 2013 and then Red Dead 2 in 2018. So 18. they've only made four games since then as, as a That's brand. Amazing. That's amazing. But back in the day, they were making games left and right and a lot of bizarre right. shit came out of them. So including four or three Grand Theft Auto games in four years, which is unbelievable. So, wow. yeah. So this was from a different era, but I don't know that I can really speak to the quality of it. As I remember, the, the game was pretty well received. I think IGN gave it a good review, but you guys have to go look. You can go look at the Metacritic. And I, I found and watched a bunch of cutscenes today and some gameplay of it. And I don't know that it's a game you want to add to your backlog. But if you're interested in this, this lore then it's totally we're not yeah. going to ever do we're not going to ever do a standalone episode on not the game i don't think on. so right right so yeah go check it out the video game check it Warriors out, my video friends. Game. i will be okay so uh, the one uh, well there's a few other things i want to talk about and then we can go if we'd like but the one thing I, I feel like we need to talk about are the gangs themselves now by my count we only see named six gangs i think so okay. or like that or like in, that interact. I could be wrong about this, but we see the Gramercy Rifts and then we see 
obviously the Warriors, which I don't even count. Then we right. see the Orphans. We see yep. the Furies, the Baseball Furies, which are yep. iconic. Then we see the Lizzies. We right. see the Punks. Yes. Who are in the Subway. And then the Rogues, obviously. I think that's everything. Rogues. I think. Yeah. And who? And the Riffs. And yeah, I said the Riffs at the top. So the Riffs. Riffs, okay. Riffs. Yeah, Riffs, Orphans, Furies, Lizzies, Punks, Rogues. Six. Seven, yeah. seven including the Warriors. And so... Yep, and again, I wrote right. down here, like some of the gangs you see in the beginning, I really wish I saw more of. Like, I, again, I love the mime gang. I think they're just so weird, but they're the best out of the ones that you kind of have interactions with. What do you what do you take away from them? What, who do you like the best? Who do you think are the most memorable? You know, it's so funny that just struck me like a little earlier in our conversation, Kyle. The orphans are so funny because. You know, you have all these colorful. Again, we talk about games like Bad Dudes and Double Dragon and all the fight, you know, Final Fight and Streets of Rage. And it seems so cartoony and colorful with the, you know, especially with gangs like the Baseball Furies and some of the ones that we don't see, like Colin saying, like the hi hats. And we see the Savage Huns in the beginning. And it seems very colorful. They're in out there in these crazy outfits and the Satan's mothers and all these other gangs that we never really get to meet. But I love the orphans because they seem we what we know about them is that they're they're such a low level gang that they're not even invited to the summit. And you know what makes it hilarious? They're not invited to this gang meeting in the park, and they're in the neighborhood. They're like literally five blocks away or something. They're like it's awesome. So the fact that they don't even know about it, and I love that they're just regular in jeans and like army green t shirts, and they just seem so blasé compared to the other gangs. And the whole, and it's probably one of the biggest, it's the biggest non-confrontational, I think, besides the Lizzie's before things get hot and heavy over there. It's the biggest, one of the biggest non-confrontational sort of exchanges that our heroes have with any other gang before things get, before things start to look like they're going to get violent. (laughs) And they're so pedestrian to the fact that even like that they, clearly outnumber the eight warriors like they're gonna let them pass and they seem a little nervous even though they're they have they have the warriors completely outnumbered and they're they're in their on their own turf and everything i just think that whole thing is very funny i think also because the the leader of the orphans sort of seems like a cartoon character he's he's a little like shaggy from scooby-doo he is like that memorable really goofy look to him so that the the orphans always stand out to me but if you want to go back to again the you know the video game colorful over the top comic booky thing, the Turnbull ACs, you know, which is kind of it's funny because they're the ones that are chasing down our protagonists in the bus and their skinheads and everything like that. And there seems like there's a lot of them and they're all hanging out of the bus with their chains and their two by fours and stuff. And it's funny. And fun, and, and you're sort of worried, and it's dangerous, and all that kind of stuff. And you think they're a skinhead group, but they're not, because they're all different colors. And almost all the gangs, with the exception of, you know, again, like the Savage Huns, which are clearly like a Chinatown Chinese gang. You know, they're dressed in those, like, I don't know what you call them, like the Jeep hats and the, and the long jackets and stuff like that. Aside from some of those other gangs... All the gangs are mixed up racially, which I thought was kind of neat. Even the riffs, you know, there's white dudes, there's Asian dudes, there's Latino dudes, there's black dudes. There's there's everybody's in there. And I thought that was really interesting. What did you think about that, Kyle? Did you notice that, like that all the gangs were like really racially mixed, very racially cool? 
Yeah, I, I did notice that, and it seems it seems unrealistic, frankly, just based on yeah. the makeup of even contemporary gangs. But sure. I know that, I, and I read just just briefly that I think the vision originally in the writing and that Walter Hill had was to that the Warriors were supposed to maybe be all black, and apparently okay. Paramount didn't want this. So, you know, it, it would have been unmarketable for them in the 70s, I guess, to have all of their protagonists as black guys, I guess, for a major motion picture. Right, but, right, right. Yeah, no, it's definitely noticeable and it's super interesting and it's like almost super. That's like the strangest part about it, just based on, again, the kind of the reality of gangs, which are often delineated by race. So I really dug that. But at the same time, it would have been really cool to have. Gangs that were a little more realistic and to have basically a protagonist that or a protagonist group that were all black, for instance, or all Puerto Rican or whatever, because that's usually the way it carves down. I don't know enough about gang gangs and gang warfare in the 70s to know if there were multicultural gangs. And I guess a place like Coney Island, where the Warriors call home, is pretty multicultural in some way. But I, I don't know sure, that I don't. Yeah, I don't know that it really represented much more than just the necessity of of this picture. So I don't know that I don't know how I feel about it, because I think that it's really cool from a representation standpoint, I guess. But at the same time, it would have been like it would have been much more interesting to have like a neo-Nazi group chasing an all black gang as opposed to this really mixed up, you know, the more homogenous groups as opposed to these all you know racially mixed up groups that probably didn't really represent the reality on the ground. But again, nothing really represents the reality on the ground because I don't know. I'm not I'm no expert in. No, in I gang warfare. I know what you mean. I th- see. I think having it racially divided would make it scary on a different level rather than make it like a fantastic comic booky type of experience because then if it's clearly like a black gang and a white gang and a latino gang it's sm- I, I mean to me today it would especially today it would smack too much of like real life you know you have the el salvadorian gang and the white supremacists and the black gangs and you know the mexican gangs and then then it gets to be a little and the chinese gangs it gets to start to be too for me that scares the hell out of me that kind of stuff so you know that would take it out of of being a for me at least and i'm sure a lot of people would feel this way out of being like a somewhat delightful fantastical experience to like being like okay this is a this is actually horrifying you know so i like the fact that they did it like that and i know also like some of the gangs were comprised of you know some actors extras stuntmen were thrown into the mix so again like you said from a utilitarian standpoint and just you know just using the resources that they had on hand especially for a low budget movie you think that they had to just kind of assemble these crews out of whoever they had. They had to sort of pick and choose and just throw everybody together. But it works. You know, it totally works for me. I think it's... Um, I love the juxtaposition between, you know, the realistic gangs and the more colorful gangs. I mean, the Baseball Furies are an icon. I mean, that's iconic. You could see that specific gang. I could tell you other movies, specific video games. I mean, they that was, a, that was an icon, sort of mixing the Kiss makeup with the baseball outfit you know what's funny about them too kyle i don't know if you caught this but they're coming up when you first i guess when you first meet the baseball furies or when you first meet them before the conversation with the warriors they're coming up from like the underground and they're grabbing baseball bats that are on like a rack like you would see in a dugout like you would see in a baseball dugout and i honestly thought for like the first couple of times i saw that movie that that was their subway stop (laughs) <laughs> but I think they're coming up from somebody's apartment. Oh, is that you know, what it from, is? It, it, yeah, it's I definitely, think so. it's definitely shot like it to look like a dugout, which is cool. Yes, 
Exactly. Like they're coming up and grabbing their bat. They're grabbing their specific. There's like a dozen bats on each side and they're grabbing their specific one. Yeah. It's really neat. Yeah. It's a, I, I actually the, the visual not only of their, their costumes is obviously cool, but the visual when they confront the the warriors outside of the subway station when they start chasing them is really cool, too, when they're in like a semicircle around them. There's they're actually oh, really so good. They are visually stunning. It's it's interesting. And that they're the campiest, obviously, group. And uh, I think it's cool, too, because I've seen people wear those costumes like on Halloween and stuff, which I thought was really neat. So, oh, yeah, it's icon- they're iconic. They're totally iconic. And I love that tracking shot you just said, too, right before as they're running through the park after the Warriors, there's like a tracking shot, like a moving camera shot as they're the Furies are running after the Warriors. Beautiful. Like, again, like the cinematography is really beautifully done. It's not only beautifully shot and framed, but there's a vividness. I don't know if it's because I watched the remastered edition, but there's a real vivid sort of look. Everything's very, very, I don't know how you, so everything's really like vividly shot. It's very colorful. The colors are on point, but everything's very crisp. I was really struck by that. I mean, from right from the opening shot, I mean, the opening shot is the wonder wheel and you have that sort of tangerine dream-esque music if all feel a little distorted it all feels very 70s but as soon as you see the first actors on screen i was really shocked of like how good it looked still because i probably hadn't seen it in at least a dozen years you know i I remember like we went through a a warriors phase i guess it was pj and i and some other friends where we we, like really into it for a little while but it's, it's been a dozen years so i was really struck by that just the vividness and you know the clean everything's so clean shot it's beautiful I don't I never heard of the movie referred to that way. And it was like kind of a treat. I was like, wow, this movie really looks good. The aesthetic is really tight. So what do you think about we talked about the orphans and the baseball furies talked about the grammar Street riffs earlier, which have a real Black sure. Panther esque look, which I think is cool with the <laughs> definitely with, with very militaristic and with their aviators and stuff like that. I really dig the Lizzie's a lot, which is the all female gang that kind of courts the well, I think it's really cool they play like this real long game with the warriors which I think is yes. really neat and finally get them back to their place and then and then open up on them but there's like that's a really fun scene because like they're doing all these weird dances like the, the blonde girl and like one of the Hispanic <laughs> yeah. girls whatever like dancing with each other and it's really strange and you kind of just feel this tension you know they really stretch it out to the point where you're like you'd know that something's definitely gonna happen you don't know if they're like a gang or if they're like girlfriends of Another game because they kind of refer to that. One of them, the Tony Danza dude, kind of refers to that being like, you know, where are you, where are you guys or whatever, you know. And uh, so I think that that's a, they're pretty interesting, and it's so funny because like they they do have like a at least one or two guns, and they like just can't hit anyone, which is so funny. <laughs> Although one of them slashes, I think, gets Rembrandt or someone with uh yeah yeah with the knife with a blade. But, yeah, what do you think of that that whole that whole all female click? It's a great scene because it's so creepy. And you're right. They play the long game. They do the whole siren thing. You know, they kind of lure them into the trap. And they do say, yeah, you're right. Vermin does say, where are you guys? And they're like, oh, they went up to the Bronx. Don't worry about it. You know, type of thing. And you're like, that's what you think. You think they're like malls for a second. You know, I could definitely see the first time watching this thinking they're like gangster chicks. And they're sort of working on their behalf. But they're an actual proper gang who's you know, sort of on the on the bounty of the warriors like all the other gangs. And I love the fact that they play it's it's such a creepy scene. It reminds me of a scene in Watership Down where the you know the protagonist rabbits arrive at this warren and these other rabbits are like really content. They're like lulled into this weird contentedness. 
and they're in this really dangerous situation. And the, and the protagonist is like, what the fuck are they doing? Like, and it turns out they're being poisoned. They're like, oh, no, the farmer's cool to us. He, he feeds us and everything like that. And they're like, what the fuck is going on with these rabbits? And it turns out they're being poisoned. Like, they're, they're giving trace amounts of poison, so they die slowly over time. And they're like, they basically act like they're on ether. And it, it almost made, it almost seemed like that, like, the some of the some of the protagonists are just really happy to be there and relaxing and chilling with chicks and then one or two of them like you know red brand knows something's up like knows like this is too good to be true so this is not right and you get that sort of ten- it's one of the most i'd say it's maybe the heaviest tension in the whole movie because you know something's wrong i think the girls even like give each other like the thin eye at a certain point like look at each other like just play it cool or whatever so you know they're even giving indications that something's up and something's wrong and it turns into this whole you know it turns out into this whole thing where they have to run away and everything i love that scene i think it's really good that you know you think of the chicks dancing together they're drinking they're smoking they're pairing off you know they're like you could choose whoever you want it's like this fantasy situation they're thrust into this fantasy situation in the middle of all this danger you know so they're just hoping it's like not too good to be true, but it turns out that it is too good to be true. It's great. It's a very memorable scene. And all the um, female gangster actresses, the Lizzie's, are really, they're good. They're, they give some of the most memorable performances, I think. They're, they're really good for, like, you know, probably, I don't know if any of them went on or who went on to be, you know, in TV and movies. But you would think, because of their ages, that this was a pretty early role for most of them. I think they did a really good job. Especially because they were probably, you know, again, low budget movie. You know, you think, I think the performances, I wanted to ask you that, Kyle. Like, where, where do you leave the performances on a whole? How, what do you make of the performances on a whole? Do you think the acting is 80% good and 20% bad or 20% good and 80% bad? Like, where do you, what's the overall feeling that you have for the acting in the film? Yeah, like, as I said at the top, I feel like in a way, it's really even. I don't think that there's any like totally standout performance. And I don't think that there's any performance that, you know, like Rick Ollie and Phantom Menace where you're like, what the <laughs> fuck? You know, where there's just like a performance that just takes you out of the scene. I think everyone really does a nice right. job. It seems like it was probably meaningful work for all these people. And again, with a $4 million budget, they didn't eat, which is nothing then and certainly nothing now for a movie they didn't have a lot of money to, to pass around for the personnel, especially because they probably had to pay all sorts of permit fees and all sorts of shit in New York. It would be interesting to see the breakdown of how much they were even actually able to pay for personnel. And so I think that the performances were really even. And I really like the Lizzie's just because of that. Like you said, that siren call in the long game. When you first see them, they're, they're like, all it's very campy. Like they're all huddled together, like in this almost anime pose, like at the bottom of the <laughs> stairs with their umbrellas <laughs> yes. and stuff. So it's pretty... <laughs> It was pretty cool. I like them a lot. I, I dig it. And yeah, I think the performances are are really even, which is nice. And that's more than you can say a lot about a lot of movies that are made either on a budget or with huge production values. No one really stands out one way or the other, which is probably fun. Uh, the only other gang we haven't touched on are the punks, which are the kind of hillbilly looking dudes in the subway station. Now, the first one you see of these guys is on roller skates. And when I saw that, I didn't remember the scene at all. And I was like, Oh, I hope they're all on roller skates because that would have been like ultimate camp. I would have absolutely loved that oh, if they were if all of them were. But no, they weren't. And actually, it's funny because when they all get together, you realize that the dude like on the roller skates takes out a switchblade, and you realize like he's five inches shorter than everyone else in that group with his skates on. So I thought that that was kind of a cool, <laughs> That's cool visual. But 
that's they're the ones that fight in the men's room of the subway station. And it's like a really pretty crazy fight. Apparently pretty difficult for them to get done on film. It took them a while and they it was pretty realistic. What I think about what's funny about all of the fights in this and maybe what makes it mo- more campy than even the different gangs and the, ca- the costumes and stuff is just like how not violent the fights are in some way. Like when they're fighting the baseball furies and they're like hitting them in the bat with in their bats with like in the chest and stuff. It's like they're all alive at the end. It's like these dudes would be dead if they were fighting yeah. with baseball bats. And the same thing in this, in this fight here when they all have like switch blades and chains and it's a really cool shot. Cause they all like jump out of the stalls and stuff, but like no one dies. They're getting thrown into like mirrors and bashed their heads <laughs> over sinks and in the and like everyone's just kind of alive at the end. So that's kind of funny. But I, I, I think the punks are probably the least notable gang visually. But some of them actually one of them in particular looks like Super Mario. He has like, a, I think, like a red shirt on and like oh, blue I suspenders or something that. like that. But yeah, they're cool. What do you think of those guys? I, I, I really do wish that they were all on roller skates. It would have been very impractical, but that would have been I know. Awesome. I feel like it's a missed opportunity. Definitely. Definitely. I, it's almost like, did they think of it or did they just not have actors that could, that were that competent on roller skates? I'll, t- I'll ask you one question about this scene that floored me when I realized it. Were there subway stations with actual arcade machines and pinball machines in them? I did notice that. that. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. What, like what was that? Or was that just thrown in to add a little ambiance in the background or make it a little more fantastic? Because I don't remember that being a thing. I mean, let alone men's rooms and subways. That's you know, that's jacked. And that, first of all, that men's room was huge. It was huge inside. They got inside. I thought it was going to be like two stalls. It's like this 20 stall men's room. Yeah. Now, with troughs and everything. Yeah, it's, right. It's like who knows? Yeah. Maybe they had them. I don't know. But it seems like, especially during that era, that seems like a, a dicey proposition. But I think it's a, it's a fun fight. It seems like that fight, things get real over the top. They get real Dragon Ball-y real quick. It's like guys getting through, you know, leaving the imprint in the stone wall. And like, it gets very Matrixy all of a sudden. Like, getting there's a lot of broken stall doors in that. Like, a lot of broken wood, a lot of broken subway tile. Like, it's, if you get, it gets really, it gets really dire. A lot of body slamming in that scene on both, on both oh, ends. It's, it's fun. It's yeah, fun. It's, wild. it's a fun scene. It's a yeah, fun it's great. And you know what? That that might be the only gang. They're completely silent. They don't say one word. That's right? true. That's say, a good point. They yeah, don't they say, don't say anything. anything. And I think that's one of my favorite quotes, too, because Mercy, who we'll talk about, I'm sure, soon, she says to him, like, she says to Swan, like, they're following you or whatever. And he's like, he says, I had to write this down because I wanted to get it right. He says, I know they're on my ass, but now they know I know it. <laughs> yeah. <it's> a, <laughs> right? It's awesome. Yeah, he's such a dickhead. Yeah. It's such a dickhead. <laughs> Such a memorable scene. I love I love that scene. And is that one of the last is that the last gang fight they have before they make it before yeah, they before they f- the rogues? Be- yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's it. Because then they they, all, they get home. Yeah. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Hey, I'm Nolan Sykes, a host of Past Gas, the number one automotive podcast in the world. Every week, my co-host, James Pumphrey, Joe Weber, and I bring you some of our favorite stories from the hollowed halls of car history. 
from the amazing to the weird to the utterly unforgettable moments, we cover it all. Join us as we take a look at the wild stories and larger-than-life characters behind legendary cars and car makers. So if you love cars or just like a good story, check out Past Gas by Donut Media, the number one automotive podcast in the world. Kevin Tejada wrote into us actually on Patreon. Hey, Kevin. He says, growing up in New York, did you two ever observe any gang activity? If so, was it cool or was it scary? I don't know that I've ever <laughs> seen any gang activity with my own two eyes. Maybe I'm sure I have seen something. I mean, I've seen drug deals and stuff, but I've never seen any sort of like ridiculous over the top violence or anything like that. Have you ever, did you ever see anything in New York or anywhere else in your time? No, I'm trying to think if I've ever seen. I've never seen anything. I. I don't know if I've ever told this story on the podcast before, but the funniest thing that happened, not funny, it was scary at the time, happened to me in New York was, as Colin knows, I almost always worked, you know, I worked most of my career in New York City, in Manhattan, but I almost always worked from Midtown to Uptown. I never really worked downtown. The first gig I really did downtown was probably in 2010. I worked at a production house down there doing animating commercials and stuff, but Early in my career, for the first decade of my career, I never worked downtown. So, but we would always go out downtown. So we would always go down to the village at night after work to bars or whatever. Not always, but you know, once a week, once every two weeks. For for whatever reason, our social destinations were always downtown, and I didn't know downtown. I didn't know the village. I didn't know it at all. Like I could, I always used to make the joke like if you put me on a subway train and brought me down to the village, and you could have told me I was in any city, I, I would I would have bought it. You know, like you're in Chicago now. It's like, all right, cool. Like, because I didn't know it at all. And one night I would always get lost coming back to Midtown to get to Penn Station to get on the train to get home, whether I lived on Long Island or I lived in Pennsylvania. So one night we were down in the village and I was like, oh, I got this. Like, I'm just going to, I was, you know, I was pretty drunk and it takes me a few hours to get home. So I figured with the walk, it would be sobering. It was a nice, cool spring night. I'm going to walk back to Penn Station from the village, which which if you guys know New York, it's a long walk. But I was like, oh, I'm down for it. And I was by myself. Well, I went the complete wrong way. And I found myself underneath the Brooklyn Bridge, which I should know that area because I grew up skating, you know, the Brooklyn Banks and down to the seaport. Like I should have known that area. But the further I went, the more I got lost. And it was late. And I ended up in this neighborhood that there was just nobody around. It was like a little... I guess a little west of the seaport and it was late. I was all by myself and some kids started to follow me and I was like, Oh shit. Like I'm going to get jacked. And at that time I wore Colin. Remember I went through like a Nike SB phase. So I had like really expensive sneakers all the time, like $300 sneakers on at the time, which was a stupid face. But of course I could do that back then because this was probably what, 2002 or something. I, it was right before I got married and have kids yet. So spent my money on frivolous things, had expensive shoes on. I'm like, shit, they're going to jack me for my shoes. And they did the whole thing where they, the kids were filed. They were young, like maybe late teens, early twenties, like three or four or five kids. And they started to follow me. And I was fucking, sh- I was like, all right, I guess you're just going to, you're going to walk back to Penn Station with no shoes. That's what's going to happen here. You know, so hopefully you just don't get the shit beat out of you. And they did the whole thing where they, they paired off and they walked on opposite sides of the sidewalk and they were trying like a little pincer thing. You could just tell. I mean, I went to school in Philly. I've been in situations before. You just know when you're getting set up, you know, you know, the. hopefully you don't know the feeling, but a lot of you know the feeling. All of a sudden, dude, like a prophet from on high, a, tra- a taxi cab came out of nowhere. And I hailed the shit out of it. 
I was like, yo, 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 yo. <laughs> I was like in the street. Like it was, it would have been the most, if I didn't, if there was any doubt that these kids weren't setting me up, I would have never done it because I would have embarrassed the shit out of myself. But I knew what was happening, you know, as they were closing in on me. And sure enough, the guy stopped. I got in the cab and I went to Penn Station. That was the only experience I ever had like that. Which is interesting because a lot of my friends, not and again, not gang. This isn't gang related necessarily, but um, but a lot of my friends in Philly, almost everybody who I was close with in Philly, got mugged at one time or the other. And I saw a couple of muggings in Philly. Both were in broad daylight, actually. Like where I would see a woman, I saw a woman get her, like a, a pocketbook like ripped right off her shoulder once. Helene and I did when we were probably like a block away, but we saw the whole thing happen because it was early in the morning. So you see things like that living in the city. The only gang thing I ever knew of, I dated a girl whose brother was a triad and he didn't like me because I wasn't Chinese. And I was always, and she told, she's the one who told me that because I never really met him before. And she's like, Oh, my brother doesn't like, I knew her brother was like a gangster, but I didn't know that. You know, I would have never known he didn't like me. It's like, you know, one of those girls that you date, one of those people that you date for a few months or whatever. So I was always worried about that, that I was going to meet this guy. And she was really cool. She was actually part Jewish and part Chinese, but I guess her brother was a triad or whatever. And that was the only time I ever remember being scared of like, oh, is this guy going to like beat the shit out of me? Like, you know, again, you're 20 years old. You don't know anything about this guy wasn't thinking of me, you know, even if, you know, and again, I was told he was a triad. Maybe he wasn't. You know, who, who right, the hell right. knows? Who the hell knows? And you were going, you were just trying to go after that strange wolf. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 but that's it. Yeah. For me, that's the only thing yeah. I could think of that was like that type of a urban environment experience, which is, which is actually kind of, kind of cool. I got kind of lucky because I spent a lot of time in urban environments, you know, Philly, New York, you know, being around, being in the street at night, you know, you, you know, and when you're a kid, you don't think. You know, it's like I should have never tried to walk from Soho to Penn Station. That's ridiculous. No one does that. You know, but when you're 20, you're just like, oh, I, you know, that's that sounds like a fun adventure. I don't have to be home at any certain time. So that type of thing. Well, if you were in Soho, at least you didn't run into the rogues. Since that's, that's true. Their home territory or the high. But I could have run into the hi hats and they seem like a friendly. Yeah. Guy. Yeah. They would have they would have fought. They would have fought. They fight like mimes, though, or they do it all right. Like, they <laughs> just stop be right before you get to your face and stuff. Um. Yeah, I don't I've never really had any any, you know, there were definitely some shady shit. shit. I saw some shady stuff, but and probably escaped a few things that probably could have happened where, again, like, you know, something's going to happen or feel like something's going to happen. But living in San Francisco and in L.A. and in Boston, I I somehow never had a, yet had a bad encounter. Maybe I will at some point, but especially <laughs> in Santa Monica, which is just horrible. It's like becoming completely dystopian. So. And San Francisco is not much better, obviously. I think Boston was probably... I lived in the Fens, so that was a pretty... At the time, the Fens was like a big park that had no lights in it. We used to go smoke weed in there and stuff. Right. And you had to actually walk through it to get from Fenway Park or in that area, like Park Street to Northeastern in the Back Bay. Okay. Two different parts of the city. And it was a big park. And there were people in there where... I remember, I think I said it on the show, Dad gave me the advice, like if you see people and you feel like you're in a bad situation, you're best and you think that something's gonna happen your best bet is to just walk right towards them and act like you don't care you're crazy yes you know? and so I there were that. a couple of situations where i definitely just like cut right through like a group of people you know i had my skateboard too so i guess i had like some sort of weapon in case something something wanted to, something happened but yeah 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 
but uh yeah nothing nothing ever did thank thankfully although i knew guys uh, nothing that, untoward no no I, I knew some dudes that that definitely like you said they got jumped or jacked up but you know not me thank god but uh <laughs> you know i still have many years hopefully on this planet so maybe i'll get robbed at some point <laughs> Although New York City is uh, is becoming or not New York City, the United States has never been safer. So maybe that kind of stuff is just becoming. I mean, it happens every day everywhere, but crime is down. Violent crime is down. Gun crime is down. Yeah. yeah. Rapes are down. Robberies down. Everything's down at historical lows. So life is uh, society has just become more peaceful. It's not peaceful enough, but it's become more peaceful. Yes, definitely. It's not 1979 anymore. No, certainly not in 79. Actually, since we are talking about 1970s New York City, Derek Beek wrote in and said, what is it about 1970s New York that makes such a fascinating fiction from the Warriors to Taxi Driver? It seems like a perfect setting that almost doesn't seem real for someone who was born in the 1990s. What we did talk a little bit about this, but like what sums it up? I really do think a lot of it is just the crime and the gentrification or lack thereof of certain places in the city and in other parts of the United States. And also the way that these gentrified and even rich areas kind of butt up against ghettos and even just working class neighborhoods and more underserved neighborhoods. You see that in Mad Men, for instance, with Peggy when she buys the apartment right. with yeah. her boyfriend and how it's like a shithole and they're really trying hard to be patient and like try to gentrify the place, but they just won't. And she eventually sells the apartment. But I think that that's what it is. I just think that like there was a lot coming to a head in the 70s and in the 80s with and especially in the 80s with the crack epidemic and everything. But with just the haves and the have nots and kind of everyone living on top of each other and this real culture war that had nothing really to do with black, white, Puerto Rican, whatever, Puerto Rican or Haitian. (laughs) Thank you, (laughs) Q-tip. But rather just the it's it's like what I actually agree with this specific thing that Bernie Sanders says, even though I really I don't ascribe to socialism is like it's about it's not about race or gender or sexual orientation. It's really not about any of that stuff. It's about class. And I actually agree with that. I think that a lot of the problems that we experience are about class. And I think that what's interesting about the 70s is just that it was about class and it was also about the way class was was broken down by race and broken down by all these other things. So right. Just based on you know, prior injustices and contemporary injustices. So what do you think about the 70s in New York City that makes it so such such an interesting character, really, for some of these movies like Taxi Driver and like The Warriors? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you think of all those movies, Midnight Cowboy. I mean, all the it's so funny that we still have. It's really cool that we still get to experience, you know, 1970s era New York in those films because it is so different now. That's what I think is the most notable thing about is the contrast between New York then and New York now is so drastic that it just it just really stands out so much. We're so far removed now from that era of New York that it almost seems it's so long ago now that it almost seems like a fairy tale. You know, it's almost like looking at a dystopian place that exists in a cyberpunk novel or a cyberpunk movie. I mean, it's that different than it used to be in the 70s. And again, it, it changed into the 80s. But again, the, the with the crack epidemic and different things that were happening in the 80s, it was still going through the 80s. New York wasn't really cleaned up until, I would argue New York wasn't really cleaned up until the mid-90s because in the early 90s, it was starting to get cleaned up. But I was going into New York. That was my heyday and PJ and my friends and my contemporaries. We would go into New York probably anywhere from 1990 to 93 was our heyday and it was still shitty 
like Times Square was still shitty. Like you would go into Times Square and there would be pamphlets all over the street of like strip joints and, you know, triple X places and peep shows and all that kind of stuff. It does, that doesn't exist anymore. So you could still see through the early nineties that it was still transitioning, but that's what it is. It's so different now that I think we look back on it. And it was like, Oh, that's a, that would have been amazing. That would have been a, that what a fantasy New York that is. No, that's really the way it was. It's just been so long. And the contrast is so great that I think that's what makes it, you know, that's what makes us forget. Like, no, this is what it really was like. New York was a was a really dangerous place. It was seedy. It was a little seedy and a little hairy. <laughs> yeah, as our Angioni would say, yeah, def- it definitely was. And it's interesting. It, it, Giuliani was really the one that turned it around, which yeah. is why he's so beloved in New York. And there's actually people can go look it up because I'm sure it's online. But there's a famous SNL skit when Giuliani used to be on SNL like once in a while where he would go he went around with like a sten- it was just a joke i don't think they actually did any of this but where he went around with a stencil and it just said sucks on it like <laughs> like a stencil that said sucks and they would go to like different tags and they would just spray sucks under it and That's that was amazing. like how they were like dealing with the oh my god with with crime in the city which i thought was like so funny it was really memorable <laughs> probably 20 or 25 years old at this point maybe not 25 but maybe 20 years old at this point so yeah, it, it didn't turn around until the 90s, and it's in great, you know, New York's pretty in pretty great shape now. There are still a few ungentrified places in Brooklyn and in the Bronx, obviously. And, and But, like, if you talk about Queens and Manhattan and Staten Island's always been... Staten Island's got a bad rap, but that's, like, where actually quite a lot of money is. Right. And so... And, like, where there are actual houses and yards, which is pretty rare in New York City, so... Right, exactly. So, yeah, it's a different kind of different kind of spot these days. But, yeah, I think it's just the... The weird, like Dagan saying, this almost foreign, and I don't mean foreign like overseas. I mean it's foreign from time scenery of a New York City we just don't really recognize, and I, I certainly don't remember New York being like that. So, yeah, yeah, it's been a long time. It's not, you know. Do you now? What do you? It's it just seems like we almost look back with such a nostalgia and a fondness because it was just such a tactile place. You know, the dirtiness, the grittiness, the graffiti. There was something, you know, everything's in a state of disrepair. Everything's poorly lit at night, you know, inadequate lighting and it's dingy. And it's always, like we talked about, it's always rain soaked and wet, even when it hasn't rained in weeks for some reason, because who knows, backed up sewers and all that kind of stuff. The rat problem, rat infestations and cockroaches. It's, it's interesting because it is a bygone era. It does not, I mean, there are still projects, you know, we still talk about places like, I guess, East New York and Brownsville and certain, you know, certain projects that still exist in the five boroughs. But for the most part, it's been so gentrified in the last 30 years or so that it's, you know, again, like we forget that it was once this way and it wasn't really that long ago. It's just that, you know, a lot of the people now are, are young to like yourself, Kyle, like you're too young to remember it being that way. You were either a baby or maybe weren't even born yet when New York was transitioning. So, and not just New York, a lot of the cities, but I think New York is sort of the poster child for that with, with good reason. Giuliani did, you know, it, it is cleaned up, you know, for right or for wrong. And I think in a lot of ways, it's, a lot of ways it's a positive, but yeah, it's such a, it's, it's cool to be able to see it still on film. I like that. I like being able to see it because it it's a character. It has so much more character. It's, you know, it's not that, squeaky clean central park uh i don't know i can't think of a is made in manhattan is that a good example (laughs) i don't know i I don't know i don't i don't know that i've ever seen that particular film but you know what i mean but yeah yeah 
No, you're absolutely right. And it's it's not a it, I mean, again, America generally is getting safer, but and not to be, you know, I lived in these two cities, so I can speak to them in contemporary ways. But San Francisco and L.A., on the other hand, are getting worse. So it's not that yeah, that's true. It's happening everywhere. I mean, San Francisco is like really falling off the deep end. And Los Angeles is just <laughs> I don't know what the fuck's going on. In Los yeah, Angeles. They're making mistakes so, in Los Angeles. They're, they're, they're making mistakes there. Yeah, too much. It, it, the thing with New York is that it was real cleaning it up was almost militant. It's a question of like whether it, the end, end justified the means. And some people would say no. And I, I totally understand that from civil liberties perspectives and stop and frisk and all that stuff, which was actually not Giuliani. That was Bloomberg. But to me, I, I look at something like L.A. that's just kind of on the other side of the of the paradigm where it's like way too tolerant of of homeless encampments and crime. And in San Francisco, like they won't even you can call the cops, I think, on like certain like larceny and certain crimes like that where they won't even do anything like that's the rule. Like wow. they're not going to if you get your shit robbed, you're not going to get there's not going to be an investigation because they're not they're not going to send cops out because they're not going to catch the person anyway, which shit. I understand. But like it's 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 a joke. I mean, I, I got out of San Francisco at the right time. No doubt. <laughs> and the fact that like and that's a real city of haves and have nots. If you go down to like that is right. mission and, you know, mission and fifth or something where it's like really shitty. Or the Tenderloin, and then you go to somewhere like, you know, Pack Heights or the Marina, where there's like all sorts of money. Although what's funny is that the the Marina is going to be in the fucking ocean if there's another bad earthquake, and that's like one of the richest parts of the wow. city, which is built on the rubble of the last earthquake in 1906, the last big one, 1906. That's crazy. All right, so it'll like liquefy or whatever they call that. They say like the marina is like the worst place to be in San Francisco. So you've been warned if you're listening and you go <laughs> and you go to San Francisco, you, you do not want to be in the marina. All right. So let's see. Uh, yeah, we we haven't really talked about Mercy too much. Uh, I don't have an incredible amount to say about her played by Deborah uh, Van Valkenburg. I'm a little confused by this character. I understand there needing to be a female presence in the movie. And you see that with the Lizzie's, obviously. But I don't really know what purpose this character actually plays. Yeah. In the narrative, I, I guess it's kind of a way to soften up. Who who is the love interest here? Is it? I'm looking at my list here. It's Swan. Swan. No, yeah, Swan. So I guess it softens him up a little bit, and that's interesting. And I guess it shows that there's like a different life they can live, and you can kind of read into that. But and they walk, they literally walk off into the sunset and everything, which is which is interesting. But I, I don't really, I don't know. I don't understand what this character is. I think one of the coolest scenes with her is when they're throwing the Molotov cocktail at the orphans and she, they like pull like a piece of her skirt off and put it into the bottle. It looks like they're like running their hands up her skirt to like touch her vagina or whatever, but they're actually just like <laughs> grabbing, you know, some, it's a little uncomfortable because I didn't remember that either. I'm like, Oh God, like this is going to get all rapey again. You thought they were going for some strange wool. Yeah, exactly. We're going for some strange wool and, but it wasn't so, but I, I don't know that I really understand the point of this character. I, again, I understand that gender balance you want there, but I think that this movie is so masculine in a way that it really doesn't mean anything anyway. And it doesn't really bring any balance, even if you had her in more scenes. So I don't really know like what the purpose of her being in this film was, but nonetheless, she's actually probably again, the most accomplished actress or actor in this, in this entire roster. Yeah. Uh, to this day. So yeah, what true. do you think of uh, this character of Mercy, Deborah Van Valkenburg? She, when you look at the, the movie as a whole, she is a confusing character because when you first meet her, you think she's going to be like the femme fatale and you think she's going to be trouble and she's supposed to be like, you know, come across as this sexy distraction or whatever. But she actually, for me, turns out to be kind of a sad character. I, I feel a lot of sympathy for the character and 
I don't know. I guess it's just certain things that you find out about her or that she says. She has like a like a little monologue when she's in the underground subways are running from the cops and they're on foot in the subway tunnels with Swan. And she goes on this whole little monologue about how, you know, it's funny because she is kind of, I mean, I guess it's, a, I want to say this tactfully. I guess she's portrayed as admitting that she's a little loose. And the fact that, like, she goes through the whole thing of, like, Swan's like, I bet you don't even remember who you have from night to night. And she's like, sometimes I remember and sometimes I don't, you know. So you know that she's actually sort of a fast number. <laughs> God. I'm saying this like I'm an 85-year-old grandfather. Yeah. <laughs> but let me keep going along those lines because it sounds the most polite. And But she goes on this whole thing about how, you know, all the women in her neighborhood have the sagging bellies and five kids and they have nothing and they're poor and there's cockroaches in the cupboard. And that she basically says, to make a long story short, that her youth is all that she has. Like she has what she has now, her body and her looks and her youth. And she's like almost saying that she want, she's living her life now because later on she's not going to have a life because of what she sees and what she's around and probably all her female quote unquote role models. That's really sad. And actually, that's where this movie gets weird for me because, and I don't remember any of this stuff from my previous viewings of the movie, that it seems to be this and a couple other things that we could talk about seem to be a little more of a heavy-handed message and almost sort of play as a message movie. In fact, you know, you're trying to teach about young, lower-class girls in these neighborhoods. I mean, she's from, I guess she's affiliated with the orphan. She's obviously, I guess that's the Tremont area of the Bronx. So a little further South than Van Cortland and you know, where she grows up and the situation she grows up in and the things she's around and the things she sees her proximity to being sort of impoverished and all that kind of stuff. And that always struck as sad for me. And it gave the color, they gave the character some color and some dimension and you realize she's not just a pain in the ass and she's not just boy crazy and all that kind of stuff. She's, she sees it that way for a reason because she's almost like she's sowing her wild oats while she can because she thinks she's going to lose it all when she loses her youth. And that's what I got out of that whole exchange, which is actually really interesting. And, you know, later on on the train, when the prom kids come in, it's such a memorable scene because now you have, you know, they're on the train, they're getting, they're close to home, they're filthy, they're dirty, they probably stink. You know, they're lower, you, you would assume they're lower class kids anyway. And this, you know, probably middle class kids come on the train, looks like they just got back from the prom. And that contrast always struck me. And that scene where she goes to fix her hair and Swan takes her hand and puts it down, almost as to say, don't try to make yourself better for them. It's like that kind of thing. It's like, Wait, I thought this movie was like a fun, campy gang movie where we're going to see like double drag and like gangs go at it. Like, I didn't know we were getting into all this deep stuff. And then later on with the corsage, when he's, you know, he hands it to her, they drop the corsage and he hands it to her and she's like, what's this for? And he's like, I hate to see anything go to waste. And it's like, whoa, it's like this striking message of like, you know, but their whole life is a waste. You know, you could see it as the, the message there is like their whole life is a waste. They're wasting, especially with Swan, because you figure he's like, has some intelligence, he has leadership qualities, whatever. It's like he doesn't have to do this. So for him to say that line is so ironic. So it's those little things in the movie that remind me of her. She almost makes it, it's her character that almost makes it into like a message movie or makes it 
puts those little message moments into the film, which really don't exist with any other character or any other exchange or any other relationship in the film, which is, which is really interesting that that character would have that semblance besides being the love interest. And you, there's this sort of, I don't know, reluctant romance going on that sort of seems to be blossoming into something by the end of the movie. I guess there's that dimension to her character as well. But that's what, does that make sense to you, Colin? I don't know if you saw her the same way as I did. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. That's a really good point. I think, yeah, it adds a different kind of perspective and texture to this otherwise very masculine story. So I, I could see that. And yeah, it it, bring, it kind of magnifies the class conflict that I was bringing up earlier. And yeah, with the... Uh, with the flowers at the end, you're absolutely right. It just seems so in a way so out of place because I don't really know like where like I would be curious to know more where she comes from. And she seems to know, for instance, the orphans. And yeah, there's just a lot of like open questions like she almost has power over the orphans. And yeah, there is something interesting about that, I guess. But Yeah. And it's it's weird, Kyle, like cause she's the only female character, too, as I as I'm thinking about it a little bit. The other female characters in the movie, you have Chloe, who's like the undercover cop with that whole really memorable exchange in the park where she chains, you know, she handcuffs Ajax to the bench. And then the Lizzie's, the female gang, the gang, the females in the movie almost seem to be another danger, like another dimension of a trap or something that the, you know, our protagonists have to overcome. But the Mercy character isn't that. But you think she's going to be that at first because she seems like a real troublemaker. You know, she's definitely she's definitely fucking up our own, our own people and, you know, emasculating the orphans who you assume, I even thought the leader of the orphans might've been her brother at a certain point. So, you know, she, you know, she's in the same neighborhood as these guys that, you know, at least if not cousins or brothers, kids that she grew up with or people that are close to her that she's emasculating. So you think she's going to represent that same sort of danger for the warriors and it's not that the warriors are necessarily good guys. This is that they're, you know, they seem, the female characters almost seem like another danger that they have to overcome. But she actually goes on to be something else. And maybe, you know, maybe that, you know, this might be reading into it too much, but maybe it's also that she meeting Swan or something is going to make her change her ways. And again, knowing Swan is sort of this gray character, not inherently good, not inherently bad. It's interesting that her his character would be the one to bring her around and maybe make her, you know, help her change her ways or introduce her to a different type of life. But it's also interesting in the fact that it wasn't supposed to be Swan. It was supposed to be the Fox character. So how much did that skew by killing off that Fox character? How much of that got lost in translation or didn't have the same, maybe the same power or the same weight as it was originally intended to be. So who knows? But you know, that's what makes it, that's what makes it interesting. Yeah. And I also think that it's funny, just a a production note about her, which I'm sure you read, which is that she inexplicably ends up with this jacket on like halfway through the movie. And that's because she apparently broke her wrist (laughs) during production and was wearing a cast. So they needed to like figure out how they were going to put that in. And she just says she stole it from some dude or whatever, which is believable. But it makes sense. It makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. She's like, they're looking for a girl with a pink shirt. Yeah. I didn't even think twice. I honestly didn't even think twice about it. Didn't think twice. No, it it makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, her her nips are poking out quite a bit before that. You yeah, know. she's got some nippy, nippy things going on there. But it's just like with uh, what's her name in the Matrix you're talking about that where her her boobs are basically just her nips are just visible through her white shirt. <laughs> that's right. Very weird. I mean, that's fine. If that's what you're into. But it's, you know, I'm, I don't need to really necessarily see that. 
Although I guess they were trying to sexualize her. She could have put on a bra, I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> but it was, it was again, I'm, I'm very conflicted now because it was also the era, you know, very early, well, mid women's lib. Sure. Bra burning era and stuff. Oh, so, could, you know, she, oh, could, you she could fit into there. <laughs> All right, Dig, the only thing that we haven't talked about, there's two things that we should talk about here and then we can, if there's anything else you want to wrap up before we go, we can. Aaron Chisholm wrote into us and said, hello, Moriarty men. First time posting for Knockback. Would hey. just like to mention... Just how wonderful the music is. Barry Dvorzon does an excellent early 80s synthesizer number that fits perfectly in the film. From the train journey at the beginning of the film to the famous chase by the baseball furies. I know music is a big part of your lives, and I would love to know what you guys thought of the track list from the Warriors. Thanks for taking the time to read my submission. Your Highland friend, Aaron. So he oh. is uh, Scottish, presumably. Hello, my friend. Oh, is that a good uh, a Scottish impression? Let's oh. hear it again. Oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> It doing sounds like best. you're an old Jewish man. I know. Yeah, I guess I was doing more my <laughs> my Brooklyn Jewish impression. We're a little more familiar with Maybe that. It works I would for suppose. Both. Yeah, it works for. So, yeah, there is a lot to love about the soundtrack. And I, that actually the synth in particular really always sticks out to me in, in late 70s stuff because it was so different at that point. Even if you listen to like really mainstream stuff like the cars from that era and it and it, and like some synth pops and you're like damn this is like really quite especially when the synth is really loud and not in the background it's like wow this is really quite um quite advanced for for music like this proto new wave stuff but joe walsh in particular who was in the eagles i think during this time or maybe right he quit right around when this movie came out but okay. he does that that track in the city which is in the which is like probably the most prominent uh song in the movie but I really like the soundtrack. It really works for me. It's got this real, again, we've used this word several times, but this real dystopian kind of feel to it. And and again, synth is just so, I, I really identify synth with New York City at this point, although it's really very British thing at this point too, to be fair. But I really folded in with that. And so it really makes a lot of sense to me. And and it much like the rest of the movie, it feels really forward thinking, the the feel of the, of the score and some of the individual songs. But what did you uh, think Per Aaron's point, what did you think of the soundtrack? Yeah, I love it. It's so good. It's so evocative, you know, coupled with the aesthetic of the film. It's so evocative of this era for me. It really, it's a warp back. It warps me right back. It sounds like, for me, I know you're such a synth head, Kyle. You love the synthy stuff. And I love it too. And it reminds me of this era. You know, you think of that. I actually thought at first, before I researched that, it was like Tangerine Dream because it has that sort of feel to it even though it's a little more synthy than tangerine dream but i think a tangerine dream i think of you know like other movies of this era like ralph bakshi's wizards or michael mann's thief from 1981 that sound was sort of on vogue but i love that that synthy dingy it's atmospheric like the movie's atmospheric it gives that atmospheric sound for the atmospheric aesthetic and i and I think that's why it works so well. And Barry Dvorzen and I guess Paul Griffin was the other guy that did some synths and some arrangements for, for the uh, for the film as a whole. And it, it's it works. It's really consistent. You know, there's a little bit of that '70s. You'll know what I mean because you're a music guy like that. A little bit of that '70s distortion, I guess, because a lot of it's so analog still. So you yeah. have a little of that distortion, which is like so nostalgic for me. That whole that whole sound. The whole emphasis of that sound. I love that. And Joe Walsh is in the city. I love that the movie ends on that song. And I think that's what makes the ending so good. And I think it's weird. It's like, it's like when you look at this is a this is gonna be a weird departure, but try to follow me. Like if you look at like a pre-Raphaelite or a Renaissance painting, and 
you you look at diagonals, right? Like if you see a battle scene and there's like a guy painted with a spear and that's pointing into a guy po- pointing a sword down. And then the sword down is pointing back to a guy who's pointing back up to the guy with the spear. So it leads your eye in a circle. It's weird. Like this song, the movie ending on this song makes me want to watch the movie again. It's really weird. I, it's a really weird thing to describe, but I realized that the last time I watched it, I was like, this song is making me want to watch the movie again. It's really strange. And then I did do that. I, I don't remember the last time I watched a movie back to back ever. Like, I don't think I've ever even done that with a star Wars movie. Like, one of our beloved Star Wars movies, like Empire, Return of the Jedi or something. Or another movie, like Raiders. Like any any of my most beloved films, I've never done that with. And I think a lot of it is that this this film is just goes so fast. It's short. It's, like, it's, almost like a, it's almost like an animated feature length. It's just like designed to be short, sweet. But that's weird. Like that that's the movie ending on that song made me want to watch it again. It's really strange. And it, that song stands out too because I don't think there are, there aren't that many... You know, it feel the movie feels very scored. There aren't that many numbers. The Lizzie's scene has some kind of instrumental track that stands out a little bit from the score. It pops, almost like a pop tune, like a Joe Walsh or an Eagle song. But I love this the way the song it feels so punctuated that it ends on like a pop song like that. It just feels right. I it's it's really important to talk about. You know, it's almost as important as any other element in this movie. It's really, really well done. I agree. I loved it. So it really fit perfectly and really encapsulates that that time and place as all good soundtracks and all good scores should. And our final question, and this is the last thing we really need to talk about, I think, and we can always fill in with any anything in your notes that you want to follow up on. But Chad Lewis wrote into us and said, the Warriors is by far and away my favorite piece of fiction from the book to the film to Rockstar's amazing additions in the game. Having grown up just outside of Boston, there's nothing quite like the thrill of a scrap down by the beach. Having grown up in the fighting community of Boston, I spent far too much time worrying about having a heavy rep. The ending of the film perfectly personifies to me the feeling of looking at a lifestyle you know you shouldn't be living and leaving it behind. So we talked a little bit about the ending, but I think the only part of the ending that I'm a little I was a little disenchanted with was just like I wanted to see more of a conflict between the Warriors and the Rogues before the Gramercy Rifts show up and save the day, as it were. And it's really kind of brutal because he throws the knife at at um, Luther and it like sticks out of his arm and stuff and he falls to the ground and then the, the rifts show up and kind of take it from there. But I wish that there was a little bit more of a conflict because they kind of are leading up to this cool thing. And he says he's leading them to the beach which or the sand, which is interesting. So like almost it almost seemed like he was giving them like a home field advantage. Like they know what it's like to fight on that that terrain and that turf. And then yeah. they never really are able to take advantage of it. So I wish that they just like gave it another 60 seconds to marinate a little bit and Great have some point. sort of confrontation before before anything happens. Well, what do you make of the ending? Otherwise, we, we talked about kind of the way it ends and I think what it represents and a different sort of life and all of that. And obviously, I think the biggest symbolism, of course, is the the corsage or whatever that falls off of the prom going people or the the disco people, whatever they were doing. Yeah. With the cool puffy shirts. But what uh, what do you make of this ending? By the oh, way, well. I wish it wasn't. I, I heard both theories that they were coming home from a prom and that they were just like suburban kids coming home from the disco. And I wish they're called the prom kids in the credits. And I wish they weren't because I, I'd rather that be open to, to interpretation. I like being able to theorize it either way. But the prom thing makes sense because of the corsage. But I like being I, I kind of like the fact that they could be disco kids like coming from going back home to Long Island or something. You know, then you get that whole suburban kid versus the inner city, you know, probably poor kid. 
you know, so I, I, I would have, I would have dug that too. So for that to be open would have been cool instead of calling them prom kids in the credits. The ending is cool. I mean, Luther, some of the most memorable, some of the most memed things are in the ending with Luther with the come out and play and doing yeah, the bottles on his fingers and everything. Yeah, it's awesome. I mean, those are iconic yeah. things that, again, that actor came up with. Originally, apparently, he wanted to do, he went to Walter Hill and said that I want to do this thing where I have two dead pigeons in my hand. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? But Walter Hill was like, that's a little too heavy. That's a little too heavy rep. So he did the he came up with the whole bottle thing. Although he credits Walter Hill with coming up with the line. This is the way he said it. And yeah, that whole exchange on the beach. I love the fact that you said that they led them to the sand because obviously you would think they have a little home field advantage with knowing how to maneuver a fight in the sand. And it's true. It's a great point. I would have loved to see that seeing how they would handle that. Maybe they would have done the karate kid thing like on top of the on top of the poles or whatever on top of yeah the- on top of the yeah the, the, pier, <laughs> the pier yeah the pier beam or whatever yeah and how cool are the riffs man when they come on the beach they descend on the beach in their black outfits with some of them have nunchucks did you notice that <laughs> yeah they have a bunch of hockey sticks and yeah hockey weird sticks and nunchucks yeah and stuff they're they're interesting because it seems like they're this big badass very organized you know again you get that whole blank black panther sense to them and, but then also some of them have hockey sticks, so it's kind of like a little riffraffy also. It's just kind of funny. Yeah, it's like Casey Jones-ish. Yeah, it's pretty <laughs> you cool. You know, yeah. it has like both a taste of both things. And I love the Maasai character, the sort of second-in-command character. He's he's hilarious. He's like such a stoic, badass dude. And yeah, the ending is just, it's just awesome. You know, the whole thing, again, with the Luther character. What's the actor's name again? Remind me of the actor's name. I have it here somewhere. David Patrick Kelly. David Patrick Kelly. The way he's sort of like sniveling at the end, like he's almost crying. He's like, no, it was the, it was the warrior. Like, it's always like he's crying like a little kid. It's like <laughs> it's only a good impression, that yeah. guy could have done that. Only that guy could have acted it like that. It's so it leaves such an impression on, on you the way he does it. It's such a memorable character for as little screen time as that guy has. Such a good job. I, I, I mean, I like the way it ends. It's sort of a non-ending. You don't really, you know, they just walk down the beach. To, you, you assume Luther gets killed. It's almost like the same thing with Cleon in the beginning. You just see them. You just see him overtaken by a bunch of badasses. So you, it's almost like they swallow him up just like Cleon. So it's like you figure they they worked him over. In maybe, maybe the entire gang. Maybe not just Luther. And then they just walk down the beach and, you know, the credits roll. Very 70s ending where it rolls over the... You know, the credits roll over the them walking down the beach. So almost always seemed very 70s to me. And yeah, I, I, I like the ending. I don't, you know, for me, it's like, you don't need to put the, the ribbon on everything. You know, it seems like Swan and Mercy are going to be together. You know, that only, beside, only what? So only Cleon, of the nine, seven return. Because Cleon and Fox both right. die. Right. So they're down to 118. They're 118, yeah, they're 118 Not bad. Yep. And the, not bad. Yeah. I'm also, I also, well, maybe the movie didn't make as much money as it could have to encourage this because I mentioned it earlier, but the, the movie was really controversial in its portrayal of fighting the cops, which was, I guess, in the early movie posters. And some people were really offended by that. And then the movie drew like a bunch of gangsters in, you know, gangbangers in together into these movie theaters and then there was like violence at the movies. So like the movie didn't do nearly as well. It had like a bad reputation, but it, it yeah. only, you almost kind of respect that they never 
ever gave it a sequel, which they could have done. And this was kind of the era of the sequel. So you kind of almost respect that they didn't do like a Spielbergish bow with a second movie and just kind of left it alone and also never remade it, which I really respect too because I, I it's funny I don't I, in one way this is one of the movies where I could see I could be like yeah you could kind of remake this and it can maybe be pretty cool yeah you know but at the same time I'm like no there's really no reason because I would if anything I would just want to ma- make it more campy and whenever we get remakes definitely like with the G.I. Joe movies for instance that came out in like 2009 and 2012 or whatever they removed all the camp so it's just was bad yes and I would I would be afraid that they would do that with this too so it's cool that they kind of just left it alone and leave it leave it up to your imagination. Although, again, I, I am a little soft on if this could use like a reboot of some sort, you know, which is surprising because I usually don't feel that way. But if they did it right and really and it was still in the 70s and it was like a period piece and it was really campy and weird, I think that they could probably get away with it. But I don't think that there's any real need to do that. No, but the um, no, I don't think so. There are two quotes, though, that I want not from the movie, but from people that wrote about the movie that I wanted to bring up as we wrap up. Okay. so first of all, there's a really good village voice piece from like 15 years ago that I read and and it's online. It's not, you know, so you can go check it out if you want to just Google around for it. But they say that the the movie, quote, makes no moral judgment end quote, which I think is a really interesting point. It's not about morality at all. It's about survival. And it really doesn't have anything to say about what anyone's doing. Nor, the, nor does it really romanticize the life that they're living and actually shows their life as being pretty shitty. And again, you see that through the lens of the the prom kids, you know, in quotes, whatever you might want to interpret them as, which right. I really liked. And then the other thing is that Gene Siskel wrote in his review, he gave it one star and he said that he was talking about how there's no consequences for their actions in the movie, which is true. And again, that's a that's a piece and a component of camp. But he uses the quote, a romantic lie which I really like that as well, because it's true. It is kind of a romantic lie. And that's what I was bringing up before about the violence, how the violence really has no, with the exception of Fox and obviously Cleon, it has no consequences. No one's really being killed. There really isn't even that much blood or anything like that. No. And so it makes it seem like there really are no consequences for this kind of behavior while in the 70s and still today, but obviously in the 70s and 80s, there was incredible consequence for gang violence and and all that it wrought on neighborhoods all in New York City and all around the country and, and indeed the world. So I really liked those particular quotes that I wrote down. I usually don't care what I read some of these reviews, these contemporaneous reviews, and I usually don't really even care what they say. But I really was taken by that because it really is a movie of no consequences at all. If you removed Fox dying, which was basically just a production decision based on, the again, the <laughs> right. conflict between an actor and a director, there really were, were very few consequences for anything that happened. And Absolutely so right. That's so I really true. liked that whole idea of no moral judgment and a romantic lie, which I think does encapsulate the the movie quite well. I mean, whether you want to judge it for those things or not in a positive or negative way, I think that those things are, are pretty objectively true. Yeah. About the film. But is, is there anything that you wanted to wrap up on before we move uh, move to the end? No, those are those are awesome points. It's always been that type of movie for me. And I think I still feel this way a little bit about it. It's like, I don't know, not that it doesn't know what it wants to be or Walter Hill and company didn't know what they wanted to make it, but almost like I used to feel about it when I was younger that maybe the filmmakers weren't savvy enough to even put a message in there. You know what I mean? They were just making a movie and making this thing and throwing it together and making this comic booky, fantastic sort of fantasy, like a fairy tale. 
and weren't even thinking it through. We're just making like an action, almost like if you would just think about making like a thoughtless, you know, quote unquote, popcorn action flick. But I don't think that I really don't think that now knowing so much about the movie and what went into it. And although it was on a shoestring budget that it's, it does seem like a very thoughtful production. So I do wonder what the intention was because you do get a, a flavor of a few different things in there. I think, I think, I think what happens with the Mercy character is especially distracting to me because it's the only time they ever go into somebody's background. And even then, it's like you don't really, you have to read into it a little bit. It's not like any of the gangsters, any of the warriors you learn about their home life or what's responsible for making them choose a life that they are instead of going to school or instead of going to college or having a job or, you know, what's going on at home, who's an alcoholic, who's physically abused, who's sexually abused. You know, it doesn't go into any of that. And Mercy is the only character you get any of that sort of backstory with, again, having to read into it a little bit. So that's what makes it really interesting for me. It's like, how should you take this movie? But I think that's what makes it so cool is that you could take it how you want it. You know, and I think just taking it as a very surface entertainment piece of pop culture is what works for me about the movie. You know, that's just what makes it, it's just fun. It's just a fun movie. And, you know, they are, I think it would have been remade already because Tony Scott, I didn't realize this. Tony Scott, who passed away, you know, of Top Gun fame and everything, he passed away, what? It wasn't that long ago, a year or two ago? Was it even that long ago? But he he had it optioned to do a remake all the way back in 2005, which is interesting because I wonder if that's why the franchise was starting to get, you know, I wonder if maybe coming off the video game or maybe the video game was coming off of that whole idea of rebooting the franchise. But apparently the Russo brothers have an option in 2016. They're developing a series with Paramount again and Hulu. So I don't know where that is right now because they haven't talked about it in the last three years, I guess. But that was where the franchise was. That's where the property was last left, was on the Russo brothers' lap to do a TV series, I guess a direct-to-Hulu series. So that would be interesting. But again, it's one of those things, it's it's kind of cool to leave it in 1979. It has that sort of resonance. It's kind of cool to leave it there and just leave the conversation there and just have the conversation about that one piece. You have the companion pieces. You have comic books in the video game. But just that one piece of overarching content you know i think it's enough i don't think you have to reboot everything but who knows like you said a reboot could be a a episodic reboot could be interesting you know who knows uh how they could do there's a million different ways to do it so you know it's something i could be open-minded about if it listen you know what i mean at the end of the day if it's bad or if you think you're not gonna like it you just don't watch it right so yeah, that's true. And also, we're more than 40 years away from by the time they even got it together at this point, you might even be looking at a 50 year distance. Wow. Between the source material and hey, do you want to hear something really scary? This was something that I read online, so I don't want to take credit for it. But yeah, yeah, yeah. We are as far away right now from 1990 as we are from 2050. Whoa. We are what? as far away right now from 1990. 30 years. As we are from 2050. God, yeah. dude, I was a sophomore in high school. That's insane. Crazy, right? That's insane. That's insane. That's crazy. Yeah. When I read that, that really chilled me to the bone. I was like, holy shit. I know. That's nuts. True. 2050. Wow. Whew. All right. Let's let's uh, let's wrap it up with our closing segments. All right. Let's do it. Let's do it, Kyle. As you know, as you remember, lightning round is back. Lightning strikes twice. And we're going to do 
I have it written in my notebook this time. Notebook for this episode. I, I really enjoy, I took a cue from you with the notebook, putting my notes in the notebook. It's so much more tact, you know, tangible and tactile. And it feels a little less cold than having my notes in the computer on the laptop here. I have the laptop open, but I like doing everything in the notebook now. I took a cue. I took, I don't know if I told you that. I took a page out of your book with that. So I appreciate it. No, I'm glad to hear that. I, yeah, I love, I used to get made fun of at IGN for writing in notebooks. I had like volumes of notebooks. But I, I like, uh, I yeah, I, I well, it's I just like it. I agree with you. I think you have to be a little more thoughtful about what you're writing down, and then it, it makes things pop more. And yes, yeah, I, I like taking notes like that. I'm always going to take notes like that. And when I was writing the story for Twin Breaker, I, I like filled in like half of a, I wrote all the dialogue by hand first, which was like I never imagined I would ever do that because you see people doing that with like movies, right, and stuff where you see like how they take notes. I'm like I would never do that, and then I started doing it, and it really made like everything work more you're more judicious with your words and there's more yeah. of a, an economy of words and everything Absolutely. as opposed to just typing everything that comes to your mind which is just much easier so i recommend yeah, i it. get that i Definitely. get that for sure and you know you absorb it a little more too when you're writing it by hand i think you know you absorb what you're writing so that and that's you know that's kind of important it's important for what we do my friend all right i agree Kyle. um yeah please you ready for the lightning round this is going to be 10 we'll am. do it traditional style we'll go we'll zip through it 10 questions plus a bonus are you ready I'm ready. All right, let's do this. Kyle, the Warriors or the Rogues? The Warriors. The Riffs or the Rogues? The Riffs, definitely. Okay. I like the Riffs. The Baseball Furies or the Turnbull ACs? Oh, that's I like the Baseball Furies, but the Turnbull ACs are kind of cool, too, because they just seem like a bunch of fucking nuts. Yeah, they're interesting. So, yeah. Very mad. The Turnbull ACs remind me of Mad Max. Now... I know we're supposed to be doing lightning round, Definitely. but I forgot to mention this. Mad Max, I thought this movie must have inspired the first Mad Max film, but the thing, the weird thing is, you talk about that dystopian, sort of fantastic gangs, warriors, all that kind of stuff. The, the Mad Max movie came out in April of 1979, so there's really no way this movie could have inspired too much of Mad Max because they were only a few months no. apart. So it's interesting yeah, that they both not. came out during that time period. Yeah, I, I love Mad Max. By the way, the Mad Max remake or the reboot or whatever, that mo more modern one from yeah. 2015, I guess, is fucking phenomenal. You like what that a movie. movie. Oh, my God. Oh, we got to put that on the rules. list. Is that on the list? That must be on the list. I don't know. But that movie rules. Great movie. I love that movie. Love it's it. so good. Love it. So stylish. It's unbelievable. $200 million to make that movie. Woo. So you really ought to have an eye to know... All the practical effects in these guys jumping from car to car. And oh, like, Holy dude. shit. And nobody died. Awesome. I don't think anybody got hurt. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. Really weird. It's incredible. Yeah, we'll really, talk really about really that. We'll movie. do an episode on that. I got to put that on the list. Definitely. When we close this. All right, Kyle, you're in a you're in a rumble. Bottle or bat? Bat gives you a little more reach. Got the bat. Okay. Yeah. Now, would you go chain or blade? Oh, it's a tough one. I think I would go. Uh, blade makes me a little nervous because you have to get in close, and then it, that's a that's a weapon. If you lose it and someone else gets it, then you're in a lot of trouble. The chain gives you a little more reach. I feel like it's a little more Simon Belmont-ish. So I'm going to go, I'm going to go <laughs> chain. Good, good answer. Okay, Kyle, we asked this question last time, but it pops up in our Final Fantasy episode, but it comes up again, fight or run? Oh, I'd probably run in person, but if I was part of the Warriors, I'd have to stand and fight. No okay, doubt. so we're going to go rumble over run. I like it. Oh, Kyle, I got a tough one for you. And we, you know we have we probably have listeners from both places, but you got to answer Bronx or Brooklyn. Oh, 
I don't know. I feel like the Bronx has more character than Brooklyn and does the, these days. The Yanks, Kyle. Yeah. You got the Yanks. And the Yanks, of course. Of course, the Yanks. Yeah, All of right, course. But I just feel like the Bronx is much more New York City these days than Brooklyn. Than Brooklyn? Is. I hear yeah, that. I, I would say that. so. Yeah. So screw you to mom and all the Ruggieros, basically is what you're right. saying. Right. All her family's from Brooklyn. That's great. And the Doherty's. Our entire family. And the Doherty's. Everybody's from Brooklyn. <laughs> but yeah, fuck them. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, Kyle. Molotov cocktail or spray paint can? Molotov cocktail. What a, what an interesting weapon. I, w- I don't understand why they didn't throw the Molotov cocktail at the orphans, by the way, because they could probably could have killed like 20 of them. Yeah, that with was that weird. one shot instead of throwing it at the car. But that's part of the uh, campiness of the movie. Exactly. Yeah. And that poor guy whose car that was. I mean, oh, that yeah, was, that, I mean, that's that's so sad. That's so don't sad. park. Don't park your car on the street in 1979 <laughs> in the Bronx. Have you ever thrown a Molotov cocktail? No, have you? Yes, I have. But I'm not telling that story right now. Well, okay. save that for. <laughs> 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 yes, I have more than one. All right, so walk or take the subway? Oh, take the subway. I like taking the subway. It's okay. very New York right. thing to do. It's fucking impossibly hot in the subway at all times, but other than that, I yeah, like the subway. It can be. It can be. Well, you know what's always funny? Do you ever do this thing? I mean, you never really commuted for a long period of time in New York, but did you ever do that thing in the summertime where it's like the train's super crowded and there's that one car that like three people are in and you get in and you realize no one's in it because the AC is broken in that car. But you, oh, oh, no, it I'm doesn't sure. matter how many times you see it, you always fall for it. It's like, oh man, no one's in this car. No one's in this car. It's either that or, yeah, no, exactly. It's either that or like there's a bum or like a homeless person oh, on the yes, train that's cleared that's, it out. That's right. But you still risk it anyway. Stinky that I've experienced bum. before. Stinky bum. Just, Stinky bum and stinky bum on the hot car is like a double whammy. You don't want that one. I know that's like that's pure (laughs) murder. All right, Kyle, we're getting near the end. Kyle, do you go vest with no shirt or just no shirt? Oh, I like the vest with no shirt because it's a little. It's a good look. It's a little sexually ambiguous, which I like about it. You know, never really know what you're on your chest. Oh yeah, definitely. (laughs) Oh. Oh my god. (laughs) <laughs> all right for the bonus question Kyle this is a tough one you have to create your own gang what's the name of your gang oh the Brookhaven boys oh that's the name of the, the gang. <laughs> you didn't have to think about that, that. was a little too quick wasn't that it was I didn't have to think too- about that <laughs> as Kyle reveals his new tattoo the Brookhaven boys you're the Brookhaven boys it reminds me of the uh in Seinfeld the Van Buren boys how they hold up a it's like the fake the fake gang or whatever that Kramer like falls in with whatever their their symbol is like the eight because he's the eighth president or whatever. That's awesome. They hold up like eight. That's eight so fingers. <laughs> All right, my friend. Very well done. Great. That was one Thank of your you, best Dave. lightning rounds, I think. Thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, what is uh, we'll, we'll end with a dad joke. Oh, of course. of course. I got a couple here queued up. All right. Where are we going to go tonight? I always think of the ones that you're going to laugh at. Sometimes I get it. Sometimes I know what you're going to laugh at, and sometimes I'm surprised. All right, I've been wanting to try this one for a while, but it's a weird one. Let's give it a shot. Kyle, I invented a brand new word today. Plagiarism. (laughs) (laughs) I don't like that one. I don't like that one. (laughs) Such a weird joke. (laughs) It's really weird. Like I feel like the the ether in the air has to be right for that joke to work. Like I've been sitting on that joke for probably a year, and I'm not exaggerating. I get to put X's next to it now. At least we got it. We got it done. We finally did it. It's not terrible. It's not certainly too not bad. terrible. It's different. It's a different one. Kyle, <laughs> did you know 
that milk is actually the fastest liquid on earth? Yep, it's pasteurized before you could even see it. <laughs> That's bad. That's worse than the first one. That's I like the first one better. One. That's, yeah, a, that's bad a pretty bad one. one. All right, but you know what? Well, the positive is we checked it off. So look at it that That way. is positive. And yeah, we positive. made a little progress. That's good. All right, not bad. All right, Dave. Well, that's it for our episode of uh, 1979's The Warriors. Not bad, my friend. Good, good show. Check it out on Amazon Prime. It's probably somewhere else if you want to look. I'm not going to look for you. I'm not your dad. Yeah, you know what? I saw it on... I thought I had it on DVD and I couldn't find it. So I had to watch it on Amazon. I think, yeah, I think it was like four bucks. It was no big deal. But I think I saw, if I'm not mistaken, the Blu-ray is on Amazon right now for like 12 bucks or something. So worth oh, it. Bad. I think it's so worth yeah. it for that price. Definitely. You know, I can't, I can't have more physical goods in my life. But yeah, if you're into you that sort of thing. No, I can't take it anymore. <laughs> I just can't take it. But uh, yeah, good episode. Go check out the movie. Please enjoy. Well, if you got this far, you probably already seen the movie, but... We appreciate your love, your kindness, your uh, dedication to our show, Knockback, as we're 100 plus episodes in. Thank you for supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand for early ad free access and leave us nice reviews on podcast services. It helps us algorithmically find new audiences. We'll see you next time for more Knockback. Goodbye. <laughs> I forgot you Moriarty's are good, real good. The best. <laughs> <laughs> It's the best line ever. Knockback is a product of and a registered trademark of Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded in Richmond, Virginia and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, USA. The show is produced by me, Colin Moriarty, and was conceived of by myself and Dagan Moriarty, who is also my co-host. You can find me on Twitter at NoTaxation and on Instagram at CLS Moriarty. Dagan is on Twitter at Dagan1973 and on Instagram at DaganLikesToDraw. Knockback is edited by Dustin Furman. As you know, all things Collins Last Stand, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and we are eternally grateful for your kindness, generosity, and fandom. Chris Adams, Carlos Algarit, Joe Arch, Morgan Ashley, Saul Balcazar, Taylor Barkley, Martin Beck, Tyler Bello, Mark Boggio, Barrett Boswell, Spencer Brand, Miguel Brewer, Lennon Brixey, Eric R. Brown, Jason Budnick, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Dylan Burns, Chris Buston, Nick C., Alex Cabrera, Patrick Harper, William O'Carroll, Brian Chan, Sean Chandler, David Chestnut, Rodney Coleman, Simon Conception, Brad Cooley, John Cordero, Gio Corsi, Philip Crone, Daniel Diamore, Colin Davenport, Knight Draft, David Ellis, Jerome Ferreira, Joe Finelli, Eric Fickenbeiner, Chris Galvin, Darren Gardner, Connor Gashian, Alex Gates, Michael Gates, Salem Ghanem El Ghanem, Tyler Goodwin, Hayden Gorringe, Josh Gravelick, Miranda Grubba, Jonathan H., Eric Harden, Tyler Harris, Richard Hebert III, Kyle Hagel, Wyatt Henry, Robbie Hensley, Scott Hernandez, Asa Haas, Blake Israel, Azan Isa Al Ricey, Josh Yeager, Joshua Jonathan, Paul Joyce, Greg Julius, Anton Kay, Patrick Kelly, Jeremy Key, Antti Kinnanen, James Kinslow III, Ryan R. Kittredge, Mike Naffo, Mason Cadillac, Jackson Lastiqua, Don Q. Lee, Patrick Leslie, Keith A. Lewis, Chad Lewis, Lewin Ray Loper, Colin Love, Scott Lovelace, Josh M, Kiet Mai, Ryan T. Mandel, Ross Baranka, Matt Martin, Sean Mason, Zachariah McAdoo, John McCarthy, Josh McKinney, Joe McPartland, Raul Melendez, Andrew Mendoza, Chris Moore, Betty Ann Moriarty, Ryan Murdoch, Stephen Nieder, Adam Nix, Donnie Nolan, Dan Nolan, George A. Nunez, Jesse Owen, Jorge Palomino, Andrew Parker, Zach Parsley, Daniel Parsons, Todd Paxton, Marius S. Peterson, Gerald Pennington, Matthew Perdue, Enrique Perez, Jason Pettit, Travis Plymel, Jeff Pollard, Lawrence F. Prokop, Nathan 
Nathan R., Ryan Reeves, Peter Reynolds, Shane Rayum, Jonathan Rice, Daniel Rivas, Petro Rose, A.G. Rode, Jose Salinas, John Schultz, Michael Shanholtz, Toby Schutman, Gregory Slovinsky, Joshua Smallwood, Ahmad Tamar, Ben Thompson, Carl Tolman, Alan Trembley, Michael Vecchio, Oakley Waldron, Justin Wagaman, Dylan Wagner, Isaac Wastman, Damon Weathers, Mike Wayne, Bloody Fang, Galjug, Casual Misfits Gaming, Homeworld Hub, Lockmore, Throw7, McDog18, Infinite, Boots, Organic Produce, Mad Mock Media, Not Your Real Dad, Mubarak, Craft Heads Podcast, Richter86, Hugo's Desk of Fortuna, Andrew, Ian, Chris, Dav9834, Gamer Filmaholic, Megadet, and Rainick. Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good, and then a bang in the night, and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home, and I can tell you... I know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. 